Are we live now? We're live? Alright, so good evening everyone and welcome. This is Twist Gaming where you get to play board games with us. This is our Great Game Hunter podcast where we like to go through the ins and outs of Kingdom Death Monster. And we are joined here today, well I'm Matt, and I'm joined here today with Joshua. Say hi Josh. Hi everyone. And of course Mr. Fenn. Uh, say hi Fenn. Hello. Fenn, you want to pimp out your stream really quickly so people know where to go to see your stuff? Um, yeah, you can uh, see my stuff over at uh, twitch.tv forward slash Uh For those of you in chat, you can actually see how to spell it. For those of you who aren't, it's F-E-N-Z-A-U-N-I-G. Um, I also have a Instagram, same name, um, and a Patreon, again, same name. Um, and for any commission works and stuff like that, you can contact me at soundigpainting at gmail.com. And I have a Discord which is linked in on my, um, on my Twitch as well. And I do answer, uh, the occasional Kingdom Death related question there, um, and whatnot as well. So there you are. Z-A-U-N-I-G. And I think I speak for all of us over here at Twist Gaming when I say that your work is absolutely fabulous. If you've checked out our Kingdom Death streams on Tuesdays, uh, all of the miniatures are painted by Fen himself, and we love each and every one of them. So we're going to be doing a continuation of the two weeks ago stream, the last uh, podcast. So Josh, you want to give us a recap of what happened last time? So last time we talked, we started getting into the little game bits of everything that we skipped over during the monsters. So we start, talked about uh, your principles, we talked about weapon specialization, and we talked about settlement events. Uh, we still have hunt events, uh, innovations, fighting arts, and disorders to kind of go over. We're not going to go over every single one, but we're going to do, we're going to cover a decent chunk of it. The memorable ones, the yeah. important ones. So, Fen, was there anything else from the last episode that you wanted to recap on? Um, no, I think we're pretty good. Um, we covered some decent stuff in the last episode, um, especially the weapon proficiencies. That was great. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, um, I think we're just kind of wrapping up what's left of the core game now, aren't we? Pretty much, we are wrapping up what's left of the core game, and then after this week, we're going to be going into some of the expansions, which I know we're really looking forward to. And uh, excited to bring to you guys, considering that's even more of a depth of the game itself. So we're going to start off this evening with the hunt events in the game, starting off with the notable hunt events, and then eventually going into some of the other more specific ones. Um, But we'll start off with everyone's favorite, hunt event number three. And hunt event number three is the Cancer Pigeons. That's your favorite hunt event. Yeah, this, this one has got me particularly salty. So this hunt event, I'll just read it out for you guys, and that's the survivors are surrounded by an echoing coup of infant babble. Strange baby-faced birds circle overhead. Gripped with instinctual horror, the survivors break into a run. Every survivor rolls a d10. The lowest is the straggler. And then if you're wearing uh, noisy gear, you get minus two to your straggler rolls. So the really horrible thing here is if you roll a one through three, you basically get cancer, and you can never gain survival for the rest of your life. And this is just I, ridiculous. It ruined one of our strongest characters. You might as well die. He might as well have died because he became completely useless after that. So, Fen, how do you feel about the lovely little cancer pigeons? 
I feel very pleased that 1.5 is going to introduce a whip that allow us to drive um, or allow whips to drive away cancer pigeons by the look of it, because um, this is just a genuinely unfun event. Yeah, we had so for those of you that haven't watched our stream, we had an acanthus doctor that had an ability where you can spend all of your survival to uh, transfer all of the plus one strength tokens that they got into plus one luck tokens because of eating the one of the fruits from the lonely tree. I forget which one it was. Um, it's the one from level one, the marrow fruit. Yeah, the marrow fruit, jagged marrow fruit. Yeah. So. They got that before they could even use that ability. So it became essentially, you will now be able to use this ability all of one time in your life. So it, it basically ruined that character for us, and I just absolutely hate this event so much. And yeah, we will be, once 1.5 comes out, we will be carrying around a whip with us at all times because that's nonsense. So what's the. Sorry. What's the rest of the roll results on that? Because you, you only went through one through three. Yeah, I'm really no. pissy about that. I, I did. <laughs> so on a four through six, a cancer pigeon latches onto your back. Shake it free by spending one survival. Um, if you don't have a survival to spend, you get cancer. So there's a possibility on a one through six that you will never be able to gain survival for the rest of your life. Uh, on a 7 through 8, you escape the terrible creatures, so nothing happens. And then on a 9+, plus, you manage to strike one down and gain one basic random resource. So, everything else is... Sorry, it's a 20% chance of a bad random basic resource. It's fantastic. What, what more could you want? Perhaps not a 50% chance, of, or more than 50% chance of, you know, dying. Basically becoming useless in the game. Very true, but did you also notice the one extra lovely modifier that this table actually has? Did you see that there, Matt? Uh, the noisy gear one? Yeah, so you can. You do not want to send multiple survivors out wearing noisy gear, because they can manage to all get themselves dropped down to zero, and then you've got multiple stragglers rolling, because there's no negatives for dice rolls. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty bad. So just being able to mitigate this through one of those other things where it's, oh, you get to re-roll one of your random hunt events, and that, that's just a lifesaver when you accidentally roll a three and then you want to chuck the game across the room. I like that you brought up roll a random hunt event, because the next one we're going to is hunt event number 10, Harvester. So can you read that for us, Matt? Sure thing. So Harvester is, this event cannot be re-rolled or avoided in any way. Uh, the ground quakes violently as a colossal worm bursts from the ground beneath the survivors, its skin a mosaic of screaming faces. The mere sight of its maddening, and all survivors suffer one brain damage. If any survivor has any noisy gear, the harvester is drawn to the sound and they are instantly devoured whole. All other survivors must spend one survival or be devoured. Devoured survivors are dead, gone forever with no hope of recovery. So, this is... Such an easy, haha! You're all dead. If you wear noisy gear, and if you don't have survival to spend to get, you know, run away from it. Yeah, I, I know this is one of the things Fen makes sure he doesn't bring noisy gear on his fights just to ignore Harvester. Absolutely, uh, it's one of the rules. I will only take noisy gear out if I super have to. I mean, sorry, excuse me a second. I build whisker harps. But I only take them out for Nemesis fights. Um, you know, I, I just 
<sighs> I mean, I get the point of this, and I actually like this when you're not wearing noisy gear. It's kind of interesting. You know, you have to hold on to your survival. You've got to think how many more times am I going to have a basic hunt event cropping up that's got like a 1% chance of the harvester arriving, and I can't avoid it. So maybe I need to not spend this survival here. But on the flip side of that, a lot of the time you just lose survival in the hunt phase regardless. Having said that, the third part of this is sickles do help mitigate this. And it's often worth having a sickle in your party to regain survival and ensure nobody's ever sat at zero. But I'm not sure how often you guys take tools out because I haven't seen you do it too often on stream. Uh, pickaxe. Once we get like DBK pickaxe, um, we've been doing it, but we haven't done it. We haven't actually made a sickle on stream, I think. I, I don't think we've ever done the uh, herb gathering event on stream. I think we did when we had the acanthus doctor because you can carry the sickle, right? I think I was carrying a pickaxe. Oh, okay. But yeah, you can carry both of them. Yeah, the tool belt works with both, but you usually take a pickaxe because a pickaxe is better under the tool belt, and the pickaxe has extra benefits against the DBK, which, you know, if if you're going that way, you're probably using pickaxes over sickles. It's a shame, really. I think it'd be cool, maybe, if the sickle did more. It'd be cool if there was a tool weapon mastery, but, you know, who knows what the future will have. Ultimately, um, I kind of like this event because... You have to consider it, and you can mitigate and avoid it. There's stuff you can do to stop this happening. Um, so it's not as bad as some of the other things where it's just like if this rolls, then, you know, if you're not playing Survivor the Fittest, there's no mitigation. You can't plan in advance. I will say, though, this is one of the ones that really fucks you over the first time you play and you don't see it coming. Well, the other thing is I feel like it kind of, like, takes out, like, a bunch of gear. Like, that could be really cool. Any noisy gear, it's just like, yeah, no, I don't want to die, so I'm not just going to take it. I I can only use this for nemesis fights. And I feel like that's kind of counterintuitive to the game. A little annoying. I could see if maybe they put a little bit of a randomizer in there, like he goes towards you and you roll a d10 and then 50-50 shot of him devouring you whole. That might make it a little bit more palatable, but it's, you know, it's nasty. And it's meant to be nasty, but as Fen was saying, there are ways to mitigate it and then it's your also it's your risk you have a, only a one percent chance of hitting this event with each random hunt event roll so do you want to take that risk so matt what's the next hunt event we have up uh we have deadweed hunt event number 18 you find a strange plant growing from the eyes of a stone face the survivors try to harvest it by rolling on the table below if any survivor has the bone sickle add plus two to the result so on a 1 to 7, you try try as you might, you cannot pull out the deeply rooted weed, so nothing happens. But on an 8+, plus, you pull the weed free. It has a strange regenerative power and may be used to cure all instances of one severe injury, even dismembered limbs. It must be used immediately, otherwise it crumbles into dust in your hands when you move on. Each survivor may use the curative power once, curing one severe injury. So this is particularly nice if you happen to go out with a bunch of people that have an arm chopped off or something like that. Or any severe injury. So yeah, any blind, if anything. Ben, your thoughts on this? I've never, ever encountered this dead weed. I don't think they exist in my version of Kingdom Death. Um, it's a nice event. There's not really any downside. It's um, a little... Nicely benefits me talking about the bone circle a short while behind um, earlier, you know. This is another one of those things you don't realize how useful a bone sickle is until you start thinking about it and seeing that it has benefits and uses elsewhere. Um, 
most of the time you can't really plan for this though so you're not going to fix the worst of the dismember you know the worst of the injuries in your party because if somebody gets so badly injured that they are a liability they're not likely to be here still you can't complain if you're all on 18 or you can but you prick if you do all right so next up we have event 29 the dark blacksmith Ooh. Uh, So the survivors cross paths with a tall, unnaturally thin man in a hooded robe. Where his feet strike the ground, sparks illuminate his path. Each survivor with three plus courage may give him one piece of gear and roll on the table. So on a one to two, that is, the creature raises the object to its mouth and eats it. It's gone. Archive the gear card. So nothing happens. On a three to six, the creature places the gear into the darkness of its robe, then returns it, hissing angrily, suffer one brain damage. So I guess it would be that a one to two is more beneficial than a three to six because you don't get brain damage. Well, the one, the one through two he eats your gear, so you lose a piece of gear. Oh, oh, that's right. You have to give him a piece of gear. Yeah. Okay. Uh, then a seven to eight, the creature unhinges its jaw and eats the piece of gear. In return, it hands you a shining shield. Gain the steel shield rare gear. So what's up with the steel shield? Well, why don't you finish it off and we'll talk about the two pieces of gear. Okay. So then a 9+, plus, the creature unhinges its jaw and eats the gear, and in return hands you a shining sword. Gain the steel sword rare gear. So you can either get a shield or a sword. Steel shield, steel sword. So the steel shield, what are the specs on that? Uh, it's a 1 speed, 6 plus accuracy, 6 strength. It's uh, irreplaceable. It gives you minus 3 movement, but you spend an activation or 1 survival to ignore a hit. Huh. And you can do that as often as you want. That's interesting. Yes. Um, steel, sh- and you can also do that while you're. Like you can't do that while you're doing because you can't spend survival. Uh, the sword is a one speed, four plus accuracy, five strength. Uh, it's irreplaceable, slow, and sharp. On a perfect hit, the edge sharpens gain plus one D strength for the rest of the attack. So, so it, gets it gets double sharp. Double sharp. It's a double edged sword, right? Yes. So, Fan, how do you feel about the uh, the sword and the shield? Well, um, I think the shield is trash, with one exception, which is if you have a survivor that has the disorder that sets their movement to a certain fixed speed, I think it's arithmophilia, um, then this isn't a problem. Uh, but minus three movement, when it gets fostered onto a survivor who's not expecting it, is horrific. Uh, my best friend, the Gold Smoke Knight, tends to chuck these at me all the time, and it's just an absolute nightmare. So, in theory, like the Steel Shield can be incredibly powerful. Like the ability on it is superb. Spending activation or survival to ignore hits is really good, and um, there are situations where you can do use that uh, where normally you can't do anything to avoid being hit. And it is—it's a dodge. It's not a block. It's. Uh, it's very powerful, but the minus three movement is just too much. When you look at the miniature and you see how big the shield is, it makes sense. But ultimately, this is not something we take out very often. In contrast, the steel sword, I actually think, is one of the few times you switch to sword mastery in the core game. Um, I really like the steel sword. It's got perfect stats. It's fantastic. Um, you know, like sharp and then like a second sharp on perfect hits. And you don't have to deal with the drawback of sword mastery giving you tons of speed that you can't deal with. 
just to give you a example comparison of this, I've got a sword master in our current um, Thursday night campaign, and she has a black sword, which has 30 strength when she wields it. But she rolls four dice to attack. I spent the whole fight against the dung beetle knight pushing the ball around because I couldn't attack it because I had too much speed. So this is like ideal. I mean, the only thing bad thing about this is it's irreplaceable. But these swords, they seem to fall out of the sky. Like generally you see one or two of them in every single campaign because there's a number of places of getting them. And I love them. They're fantastic. And they can change campaign. Heck, if you get this in the first, I don't know, like five lantern years or something, it can trivialize so many situations for you. So it's brilliant. My only problem with the hunt event as a whole is that actually when you look at it, this is an 80% chance of something kind of bad happening and a 20% chance of something good happening. And quite often, 40% of the time, you even lose a piece of gear. So if you do have some trash gear you're carrying with you, maybe, or um, stuff that only costs one organ to make, like say a fecal salve, which most of the benefits of it are used up when you try, uh, when you head out, as long as you have the right affinities or something. It's not, not terrible. Um, but, uh, you know, steel shield, meh, steel sword, hooray. Um, how about you, Matt? I mean, just looking at it from the... Uh... The stats, that minus three movement really is a killer, like you were saying. Um, I'm not too familiar with the disorder, I believe it was you were saying. That it gives you a set fixed movement, um, but I can't, so I can't really speak to that. But the sword itself, yeah, I mean, we all have spoken about how we like slower weapons and this one locking you in at one speed, you know, being slow, and then giving you a lot of strength opportunities there, just in case you haven't rolled poorly on one of the three die that you're rolling if it you know happens to get a perfect hit um no, it just seems nice and four plus accuracy is really nice on it too so you're not going to be worried too much on if you're going to actually wind up hitting it and wounding is still you know not terrible at all with the sharp um so what do we have next there josh hey, talk uh next up we have the gregalope oh okay and 38 the gregalope uh, a massive antelope stands astride the horizon, its ancient body bloated with tumors and scar tissue. Its milky eyes catch sight of the survivors, and it bounds away. Driven by a sudden desire, the survivors give chase. The hunt, uh, the event revealer rolls a d10 and adds any base speed attribute to the result. So you roll a d10, add your speed to it. On a 1, the survivors quickly fall behind the majestic uh, beast, move one space away from the quarry on the hunt board. On a 2 through 9, the Gregalope is far too fast. It is gone before you know it. So more than likely, that's probably what's going to wind up happening to you. Uh, 10 to 11, the survivors lose sight of the Gregalope, but discover a hidden path. You may re-roll the next result on the hunt event table. That gives you a, oopsie, I don't want cancer pigeons. Yes. And then a 12 plus, just before it leaps out of view, the Gregalope bows its mighty antlers. The event revealer gains plus one permanent movement. And that's pretty interesting because I think we've noted before that plus movement is uh, one of the harder upgrades to get in the game. So I know you wanted to talk about this event a little bit, Fen, so you want to go at it? Uh, I actually just wanted to highlight that it's nice to have an event that is fun, um, that has a minimal 
penalty, but it is meaningful because moving one space away from the quarry and the hunt board means you're going to have to re-encounter whatever caused you to roll the Gregor open in the first place, so probably another basic hunt event. Um, but also, it's, it is one of the few places you can gain additional movement, which is unusual. And it's a weird because you add base speed to this result, which is this is one of those odd things like when we talked about, um, I think it was Red Fist before, where like for some reason, speed seems to be linked not just to attacking speed, but also linked to in some way to movement speed, but not really linked to movement speed, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, kind of slightly rhetorical question. Um, but uh, it's it's just fun. It's a nice idea. It's a little bit of um, like extra flavor. And I think this is linked in some way to the first Kickstarter, if I remember correctly. Isn't this a reference? It's a reference to a backer, I believe. I, I don't know the story. I, I do know that there, that there is a reference to the first Kickstarter with us. But yeah, ultimately, I really wanted to bring this up because it's just, it's a fun event. It kind of, whenever I've seen people um, playing with me who've had this event occur to them, there's a bit of sense of wonder and kind of like, oh, this is cool. You know, we're chasing after some strange, weird named beast. And, oh, my God, it's just like not even we're not getting punished for for once. Um, it, it seems like a little moment of wonder in the game. Um, and I kind of say I kind of hope that this uh, this particular antelope, the Gregolope, never makes an actual appearance anywhere as a legendary creature or anything. It's kind of fun to have it turn up here in the hunt phase and and then gallop off again. So, yeah, it's just a nice event. It's just full of flavor um, with a minor downside and a decent-ish upside, and it's all well-balanced. So I, I wanted to highlight it to applaud and say, this is good hunt event design. I like this one. There we are. All right, so next up we have event 42, which is Surgeon. <clears throat> so Surgeon, a creaky carriage approaches the survivors. Richly appointed in red and gold, the carriage is carved on every side with lurid faces. A massive eye adorns the front, while the door of the carriage is a waiting open mouth. Out of the small window, a gnarled hand beckons. A survivor with three-plus courage may choose to enter the wagon. They may immediately remove one impairment or severe injury, even if it is permanent, and gain one random disorder. So this would be one of the few ways to get rid of the cancer pigeon thing, correct? Yeah, you go to the surgeon. Yeah, you know. He cuts it, cuts it out of you? Just takes the cancer out of you. It's uh, one of those other... You get to heal someone if you roll this number and you have courage enough to do it. Yeah. So how do you feel about uh, the surgeon, Fen? Well, what can you say? It's um, it's it's a good event. It's an interesting event. It's, again, you're making a choice of, do I go in and get rid of impairment, but I could get a disorder? There's always a risk with the disorder deck of hitting, like, Fear of the Dark and Permanent Retirement. Um, you know, especially with 1.5 changing drums so it's harder to get rid of fear of the dark from survivors um because obviously i used to drum it off them make them play drums for a few hours until they felt better so it's there is a risk to this and again it's got cool flavor so i like this um and as you said it's one of the only ways to get rid of impairments and there are a few impairments in this game that are like cancer pigeons absolutely horrific so it just gets two thumbs up. You know, every time you roll a 42, which, of course, as we all know, is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything, uh, the Dark Surgeon gets a round of applause. And it's cool. It, like this, 
face it, this is a very mysterious and interesting looking character as well. All right. So up next, we have number 47, Banquetry, which I actually forgot to put in our show notes. But uh, this is something we played on stream and really kind of... We weren't too happy about it. No, no. This this, this got us a little salty. So Banquetry is a small copse of trees rises over an otherwise lifeless plain. Enticing red fruit hangs from the branches. Each survivor must spend one survival to resist the temptation. Insane survivors may not spend survival to resist. Otherwise, roll 1d10, resisting on a 7+. If you fail, survivors eat from the banquet tree and become addicted to the fruit, refusing to leave. Suffer minus 1 survival, then roll again. If your survivor with 0 survival fails to resist, they suffer 2 event damage to a random location, and roll again. Survivors move on when there are no more survivors eating the fruit. Yeah. Yeah. So we literally had one survivor just sit there. Gorge himself. Gorge himself till he basically lost all his armor and had all his boxes checked. And and it was just time till because he couldn't die from it that he finally rolled a 7+. plus. Yeah. Ben, your thoughts? I don't like any system like this, which creates a potentially almost endless loop. Um, it's a horrible event. And, you know, at least if you're sane, you do have some decisions. But basically, this is like, if you're sane, lose one survival. If you're insane, enjoy um, trying to get a 7+. plus. So it's uh, it's a bit shitty. I think the uh, the punishment for having no survival left is pretty bad, especially because there's so many things in the hunt that will strip um, survival away from insane survivors. So... It kind of, uh, it sucks. It's not fun for anyone involved. Um, and I think this is just one of those ways that they want the hunt event to punish and wear down survivors as, uh, uh, while they're heading in. It's just a little too harsh for my liking. And time-consuming. So, yeah. All right, so the next event we have is number 48, Death Wager. I, I, this is oh, a Go on, Fen. Well, yeah, I was going to say if you're not, if you weren't, weren't going to mention Death Wager, I was about to jump in and say we have to do Death Wager. Like this Death Wager is like really fun, and you don't mind if I take over for this one, do you? Go for it, fan. Okay, so Death Wager. Um, the survivors are awoken by a traveler hidden in a deep cloak. The traveler removes his hood to reveal a face whose jaw has been split in two. Two chins curve away from each other, each with its own mouth. In a dreamlike state, the survivors all understand this entity is known as the Gambler, and if they speak, they will die. Until this event is completed, only the event revealer can speak. If any other player speaks, the survivor turns cold and is dead. The survivors must play the Gambler's game, or be trapped with him forever, and each player must roll on the table below. On a one, the Gambler reaches out with his hand and scoops up your dice. It vanishes within a fold of his cloak. You feel all traces of air leave your lungs. You're able to draw another breath. You're dead. On a two to nine, you do not lose, you do not win. You can play again if you want to, and if you do, you have to roll again on the table. On the 10+, plus, you win again a permanent plus one luck. So this has always drawn like excitement and interest from um, the guys and the ladies when I play, because we're all role players. And it's sort of one of those things, a bit like the, um, the weird dream in the settlement event phase, where Kingdom Death moves a bit more towards a role-playing game. And I'd love to see more events like this. Uh, additionally, it's one of the few ways you can get an extra luck. The 10% chance of dying does suck, you know, but this is the gambler, man. This is one of the entities. This dude appears in People of the Stars, 
You know, this guy is coming in as a nemesis um, in the gambler's chest. This is one of the big boys. So it's fantastic to, uh, to, to encounter him. And I would ask your, um, your opinions as well on this, but unfortunately, as you know, I'm the, I'm the event revealer, so I'm allowed to speak, but you guys can't. If you do, you get, the gambler's going to kill you both. So I guess we need to move on to the next one. <laughs> oh, God, man. Um, no, I, I, I do enjoy Death Wager, and yeah, uh, the whole everyone has to be quiet, and otherwise you die. It's just like puts this tension on the table. And then, like, someone's wrong, they're like, should I keep going or should I stop? And if you don't tell them, like, what the roll table is, it, it makes it even more interesting. Um, so, Fen, when you get this, do, do you go for the 10 plus or do you just roll and, and not hope for a 1? I rolled once and then I was done. I don't see the point in pushing again because the odds are pretty 50 50 between dying and gaining the luck. Uh, with the new survival of the fittest, it's possible I might consider, but I'd rather save my reroll to stop dying over trying to push to gain um an extra bonus so i've never seen anyone push it uh more than three times tom pushed it three times um and did win at the end of it uh but tom enjoys things like that he's a role player through and through who loves fun things it was also great fun watching him in silence grin and pick up the dice and throw it across the table a second and then a third time while everyone else rolled their eyes in horror yeah i'm a gambler at heart so i think i've whenever we've rolled this i've always pushed for it no, Josh? Yeah, I, th- I think so. All right, so Fen, you want to take the next one? Because I'm sure you like the next event, too. Uh, number 53, The Masked Salesman. Oh, yes, the Zelda reference. So the survivors meet a traveling masked salesman on the road. He insists that he has special layers to offer. You take one copy of each mask from the mask maker gear, shuffle them, drawing one at random, and this is the mask the salesman is offering. Then the event revealer rolls 1d10 to determine the price. And they gain the mask. So one to three, um, the asking price for the mask is one gear from your gear grid and your survival reduced to zero, which is, you know, that's quite a price to pay, but it's not too bad. Um, and I have rolled too far forward. There we are. The four to seven, the salesman slightly points to you. Instinctively, you hand him his asking price in exchange for the mask, which is one gear from your gear grid. And on eight plus, he imparts the mask to you and forms a survivor. His salesman's lips form the sounds of the survivor's name. It is gone. In exchange for the mask, give your survivor a new name. It must be different. And plus one survivor for naming your survivor. So in all cases, you're going to get one of the masks, um, which is pretty fantastic. Although we have always, and I do mean always, 100% of the time, drawn the man mask. Every single time, which is the least interesting and fun of the masks. But that's not really the salesman's fault. He doesn't have anything else in stock. So it's just a, it's a great event. It's a fun event. It's a nice reference to Zelda. Um, it can feel a little bit like annoying if you're the hunt reveal and you've got a full grid and you have to break it up and sacrifice a piece of gear to fit it in there. But it is it's just cool. This one's like fun. This is also the benefit you get for picking romantic because somebody gets the ability to call this guy once in their lifetime and you can have him turn up and hand you a mask. And of course, the other cool thing about these masks is the death mask is unbelievably ridiculous if you're crit farming and the other masks can give you great benefits. In particular, three of them allow you to hunt the legendaries if you manage to get the mask maker location unlocked. So this is just, it's a great 
fun event. It's got flavor. Uh, it's got a little bit of pain and a lot of pleasure, which, of course, Pinhead would approve of. So I'm all for it. How about you guys? Maskmaker is always fun. We always have a tendency to uh, get the white lion mask from it. That's like what we got like every single time we did this event. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of frustrating. <laughs> um, where I would love like the death mask and stuff like that because that's just silly fun. But no, uh, I, I, it's always a fun event, and like this is one of the things where it's not like punishing, and it's not like handing you something. It's like oh, we're trading something, so you might get something bad, and you're also going to get something good. Uh, I, I like these hunt events that kind of have that mix. So next up we have uh, number 63 feet. Matt, you want to go over that? Sure thing. So the stone faces ahead are replaced by an expanse of stone feet sprouting from the ground. The survivors walk soul to soul with the feet. If any survivor is insane, they are convinced they have reached the underside of the world. Terrified of falling off, they grab a hold of the ground for dear life, slowing the party and attracting unwanted attention. Uh, roll once on the hunt event table for each insane survivor before moving on the hunt board. If any of those rolls result in 63 feet again, uh, ignore it and re-roll. And if all survivors are insane, they fall off the underside of the world and they're dead. Yeah. So, so this is insane party is dead. I, I think it's really funny, though, that it's the, the imagery there is all the insane people are grasping at the ground and they're just, they slow the party down and they annoy everyone. Yeah. But if they're all insane, they all fall off the world and die because maybe they weren't crazy. Um, and I believe this is another spot where whips will actually help. Oh, really? Yeah, you grab onto the feet with your whip. Hmm. And uh, you stop it. There's actually a really cool piece of art on the Kickstarter showing that, I think. It shows the cancer pigeons, and I think they show the feet picture. So there's going to be some new art for the hunt events, which I think is awesome. Ben, what do you think about uh, feet? Um, first of all, I think the feet image is linked to survival of the fittest. The idea being insane survivors with survival of the fittest bite onto the feet with their teeth and hang on. So that might be what it is because they were talking about making your principles more relevant on the hunt events. Um, it could be whips, but I, I, you know, I'm running from memory here. Uh, ultimately, I got to say, while this is like, it does create the rule of you never send out an entirely insane party to avoid them all getting wiped out. This is actually an incredibly funny and clever uh, and an entertaining little event. It is, it's full of character and flavor. And I kind of forgive it for being like this dick move gotcha if you send out an entirely insane party. You know, once you know, know about feats, you're at, you, you're risking it if you go out with everyone being insane or people who could become insane along the way. But, uh, it's, it's fun. You know, it is, it's cool. It's interesting. Uh, it has re resulted in a few people sculpting bases with feet on them to represent this uh, and it's captured a lot of people's imagination so it's one of the the more cool events in my opinion even though it is a generally in the design that normally i'd be like this sucks but i'm okay with it here because it's flavorful yeah and you were right it is this new survival of fittest picture of the guy biting up the feet and hanging there that, that, that once you said it, it reminded me so next up we have event 65 so that's statue Cresting a hill, the survivors find a statue of a man sitting on a throne. If any survivor has nine-plus understanding, that's max understanding, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the survivors walk past without incident. Otherwise, every survivor must roll a d10. The lowest-scoring survivor, and roll-off in case of ties, is a straggler. 
The straggler is drawn to the statue, touching it gently. In an instant, the straggler is gone and replaced by the man from the throne, who is now flesh and blood. The straggler sits in his place on the throne, stone mouth open in a silent yell. The man offers his thanks and joins the hunting party without explanation. The, uh, the straggler is dead, replaced by a new survivor with the straggler's gear. A random weapon specialization, two random disorders, and two hunt XP. So, I don't think I've ever seen this one before. No, this is something we've never ran across, and it's... I find it kind of interesting. I, I think that's terribly amusing. I think that's really funny. I, like I mean, it. it could be really shitty for a good survivor. But right, right. But it, I think that's kind of funny. Ben, your thoughts on the uh, statue? Um, we've actually had people get switched across to this. Um, it was kind of uh, funny and interesting. Um, if it hits you early on, it's actually really good because, you know, you get a random weapon specialization um, and the hunt XP. Uh, and basically, you can get you know get a bit of a boost up. Um, I have seen some people talk about how they keep a track of whoever's turned into the statue. So then, when they next play uh, and encounter the statue again, then it'll be the previous statue, previous survivor who will not then be the statue and kind of chain it and tie together things. So that's one of the things I like about Kingdom Death, when people go a little off the original script and kind of embrace the role-playing side of things and the house-ruling stuff, because, let's face it, this game is kind of a bit of a framework for you to hang your own stuff over. Um, so, yeah, it's a wonderful little uh, event. Um, so much so that I almost feel bad when I have 9-plus understanding in the party and we can't do anything with it. But let's face it, if you do have someone with 9-plus understanding, they're probably so good you don't want to risk them they're getting caught as the straggler anyway. So it's fun. It's fun. It's good. Um, and it's again, it's got lots of flavor. The, the text is really well written. So I like it. And I, I like that suggestion of you keep track of the last survivor there and you just kind of swap them out. And even if then, if it happens to like a really good survivor, you'd be like, maybe in a back. future campaign, I'll get him back. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, oh, my Acanthus Doctor Constellation double... Uh, <laughs> double savior ageless character when will I see them again new campaign ep, uh, what do you call hunt number two random hunt events rolled you just tank through the rest of it <laughs> alright uh, so next up we have event 67 Fen I, I know you like this one you want to go over it yeah I do uh, saliva pools the ground ahead is pockmarked with pools filled with a gooey liquid the pools bubble merrily and stink of digesting meat as the survivors move between the pools, they are overcome with waves of nausea. Each survivor rolls 1d10. If the result is less than their current survival, they continue on. If the result is greater than their survival, they vomit into a nearby pool, suffering one event damage to the body and gain one in understanding. They witness the pool greedily dissolve their vomit. Nim, 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 nim. If any survivor has 3 plus understanding, they devise a way to use the pools. Each survivor may place one gear in a pool, archive the item it is lost. The survivor gains the resources used to craft that gear. So this has created one of the little rules that we have when we play is that if you if you have a build that doesn't need a full grid, then you take a piece of trash out that we're like um, not too bothered about using anymore on the chance that we run into survive uh, to saliva pools. Um, so you can toss it in there and get the resources back, which is nice to pull the resources out of the deck in advance. Um, and 
like trash can be a very subjective thing because we're actually at the point now where we've got some very good weapons that we consider trash and we're still carrying them out um, and looking to dump stuff in saliva pools if it happens. On top of just the strategy of hoping you hit this um, and aiming for it, well, not hoping you hit it, but being in a position to take advantage of it if it does occur. So, people, you know, like... From external viewpoint, people might say, "Oh, you're just being lucky. You've rolled survival pools, survivor pools, while you um, happen to have gear you want to get rid of." But it's sort of actually, nope. We're playing to give us the opportunity. Um, but on top of that, I like again. It's got some good flavour. It's got some great text. The pools bubble merrily is a, a wonderful piece of writing, um, and uh, it's again got that kind of like. Yeah, sure. Maybe if you roll badly, you suffer some event damage to the body, but uh, you do get some understanding. So it's not entirely a punishment. It's just it's again, it's good design. It's got some bad things that can happen to you, but it's got some benefits. So, yeah. Have you guys had this happen? I think we have, but we haven't been able to actually dissolve anything or we didn't want to dissolve anything in the pool. We might have like dissolved like a piece of cloth or like rawhide or something for like a hide once, but that's about it. Otherwise, we really haven't had the chance to try to make it fun. Make it fun or try to min-max it or at all. So you're ready for the next one I met, Matt. Number 79. The Dying Small Prospector. My favorite event. <clears throat> so slumped against a large stone face, the survivors find a small dying prospector riddled with arrows. As they approach, he growls a, a warning threatening them with a huge stone shard. When he sees that they are not evil monsters, he calms down and gives them a key. With his dying breath, he says, This is the key to the portcullis. Without it, you will never get through. Record the portcullis key in the settlement record sheet notes. So, this this sounds like it would be important for something. Yeah, so, we'll, we'll get to the other hunt event that has the, uh, the key on it. But, uh, this is one of those, you just... You hope this happens, and then you hope the other haunt event happens at some point. Yeah. All right. Next up is event 80. That's the Lovelorn Rock. So these survivors pass a ring of stones with an unassuming boulder at the center. Every survivor must roll a d10. The lowest scoring survivor, randomized in case of ties, becomes a straggler. The straggler is smitten with the rock. They heft the boulder. It's heavy! And carry it everywhere. Forever in love, the straggler loses one gear slot permanently to the rock. The survivor must always leave one gear space empty to hold their rock. The rock can be lost like normal gear. Record this on your survivor sheet. So you just really love your rock, and you don't want to let go of it. Oh. Uh, I think the coolest thing was I saw, probably in the Kingdom Death Facebook group, someone drew up a gear card of a little rock with a heart on it, like companion cube like kind of thing. Like companion cube rock, yeah. yeah. Um... Ben, how do you feel about the uh, lovely rock? Well, it's um, it really sucks to to be the person who's affected by this, but it's kind of one of those funny things that happens. I did actually make a gear card specifically for this, painted up a little heart on it, and um, and called it Jim's Love Rock because my friend Jim who got saddled with it, and it made the whole experience of him having it dumped on him a little more palatable. So it's a it's a fun event. It's again, it's kind of like this is a bad thing happening in a funny way. So it makes it a little bit more palatable. I wish there was a gear card and I wish it was like a slight weapon that you can kind of hit monsters over the head with your giant rock. Like a very weak weapon. Yeah, like like almost like fist and tooth. But like 
you know, almost fist and tooth, maybe like one strength or something, like a fountain stone kind of thing. Josh, Josh, all I can take from that is you really do not love your rock. You wouldn't hit people with it. This is a rock to cherish, not a rock for swinging. This is a rock for bedtime, not for fighting. It's a rock that gives you plus one courage when it's in your gear grid, right? <laughs> plus one to baby making? Yeah, plus one to intimacy rolls. There you go. It's the love rock. Uh, so next up we have 82. That is consuming grass. So vibrant green grass grows in patches ahead of the survivors. Closer inspection of the delicate leaves reveal them as sharp as any fine blades. Carefully picking their way past the verdant hazards, a random survivor stumbles and becomes a straggler. Roll on the table. So if you, uh, let me go backwards here. If you roll a 10 plus, the survivor stops their fall before it's too late. So you're fine. On a 2 through 9, the survivor falls, but dexterously manages to avoid touching the grass with his bare skin. One gear item does fall in. Archive one gear of your choice, or keep it, and treat this result as if you had rolled a 1 on the table. So you could you could sacrifice your, your Lovelorn rock if you have it, right? Yeah, you could sacrifice your rock. You and, wouldn't love it that much, then. Uh, apparently not. And then if you roll a 1, uh, the survivor lands in the grass patch, quickly climbing to their feet, but they realize it's too late. The parts of their body that touch the ground are sprouted with sharp grass blades. Any attempt to remove the grass spreads it further over the survivor's body. During the showdown, the monster treats the afflicted survivor as if they were already dead. The monster cannot target the survivor or trigger any reactions when the survivor attacks. At the end of the showdown, this survivor dies. So, that could be beneficial, but you also are going to just die. How do you feel about that one, Josh? Like, if you were going up against something that was really strong, and you weren't sure, you're like, I'll just have this survivor go in, because he kind of... He won't die, probably. He won't die, probably, because he can't get attacked. He can't. He can't get attacked or targeted or anything. Yeah. So, makes it interesting. Ben, how do you feel about the uh, consuming grass? Um, I've never encountered this one. Um, so, it's my first ever sort of reading of it, really. It's, um, it's a weird one. I mean, not talking to Survivor, not triggering any reactions or anything like that. That is almost a guaranteed kill on the monster. Um, basically, the monster's got its trap and any ways that it would attack if it sort of does area effect or hits the survivor while it's trying to attack the other ones. Um, there is actually, and eventually we will talk about it, there's a build in the game that does something very similar to this and destroys the entire game and you can win without ever being under any risk. So this is like unbelievably powerful. Um, yeah, you die. Uh, essentially, I think you get a guaranteed kill on the monster in exchange for one survivor or perhaps your whole whole hunt party. This is like, you know, I don't see how you can lose at all if you're not getting hit by reactions, just the trap. So, yeah, it's um, interesting. Yeah, I've always avoided the one. Like, so I've never, like, actually done that and seen what happened. And now rereading this, it makes it sound interesting. So, Matt, you ready for number 83, one of our favorite events on stream? Yeah, this was a fun one to do on stream, and this was the flesh monolith. So, these survivors approach a five-sided monolith made of flesh that stretches into the darkness overhead. Limbs and faces of humans and creatures alike protrude from all sides. Roll on the table. 
So if you roll a one, the limbs of the monolith spring to life, grabbing you and tearing you limb from limb, joining the parts of your body to the monolith with maddening efficiency, as you are ripped apart in the shower of gore. Dead. All other survivors' courage is reduced to zero, and they suffer three brain event damage. So I never noticed that, but it reduces all other survivors' courage to zero. Interesting. Yeah. Does that mean you could regain your courage milestones? Not sure, Fan. That's a question for you. Um, hmm. Definitely something I need to sort of consider. I'm uh, just having a look at it now. I accidentally closed my book. Give me a second. Right, so we're going to go over the uh, rest of the results while you're looking at that. Sure. So a two to four, hands and tentacles grasp at you, spend one survival, or treat this result as if you had rolled a one. So if you don't have survival, you roll a one. Uh, five to nine, all survivors are driven back in horror, suffering one brain event damage. So, so far that sounds all pretty terrible. But when we were actually playing this on the stream for the first time, we were lucky enough to roll a ten. Yeah. And that's the entertaining one. So on a ten plus, a dead survivor is reborn. The monolith rushes into the ground, leaving a previously fallen survivor in its place. Take a record sheet of a dead survivor and resurrect them with only a founding stone and cloth gear. The reborn survivor may accompany the survivors on the hunt or return to the settlement, plus one population. When they die, they rot away into mush and uh, form a new flesh monolith, leaving no corpse behind. If the survivors have never lost anyone, nothing happens. So, essentially, you, you reborn, you resurrect one of your survivors. They're naked, but they are resurrected. And this happened to happen to us when we were fighting the Dung Beetle Knight. Yes. I believe for the first time on stream. For the first time. We had and five survivors. We had five survivors, and we basically made the freshly resurrected survivor the permanent dung ball kicker. Yeah. So we had two to three people at all times punting the dung ball around the map, and it was it was pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, that's how Donald Trump came back. Yeah, that's how Donald Trump was resurrected. For those of you who did not watch the stream, we had a survivor named Donald Trump that got killed, and we resurrected it with the flesh monolith. And then he died again and built another wall. Yeah. So, Fen, have you ever been lucky enough to have a resurrection from the flesh monolith? Uh, no, I'm afraid not. No, we've encountered it a few times. Um, we have had one person lifetime re-roll because they hit the one. Um, and otherwise, it's just been like the hands and tentacles spent survival results. So, no, we've never brought anyone back, which has been a shame because the last few times we encountered it, we had a survivor with, um, I think it's nine weapon um, masteries sat in our dead pool that we really wanted to bring back. So, uh, it's a real shame. But, yeah, it'd be nice one day to experience uh, a, a fleshy monolith survivor um, coming back. I feel. Like, obviously, this is a traditional reference to kind of a horror thing that occurs a lot, but it also feels very Hellraiser, this one, because actually, no, maybe it is actually a Hellraiser reference because um, the monolith that occurs in Hellraiser has in Hellraiser 3 Hellbound dragged people into it to reincarnate Pinhead, and in Hellraiser 1 and 2, people got themselves reborn from um, their deaths that occurred with the monolith under circumstances. I'm not sure if you guys have watched those films. Um, the first two are actually reasonably good horror movies, and then the series gets increasingly more and more shit. But the guy who plays Pinhead, Doug Brady, gives a fantastic performance. So I think this might be a Hellraiser reference. Um, yeah, this is a really cool event. Again, pain and pleasure in equal parts. 
Finn, do you want to do the next one? Because I know you like Event 84, Scribe's book. I do. Let me put this down. I'm actually trying to find something before we get to a certain other event a bit further down the line. But I will do Scribe's book. That's no problem. Um, so, a huge, ornately bound book lays open before the survivors. If the survivors' settlement is innovative pictographs, and let's face it, most settlements don't bother with pictographs, um, but, you know, uh, this is one of the reasons to do it. Any survivor with three-plus courage may write their name in the book. If a survivor has three-plus courage and is insane, they must write. You roll on the table below, adding your understanding to the result. If no one writes in the book, you must roll again on the hunt event table before moving on the hunt board. So on a one to four, as you finish writing your survivor's name, you know that you did something terribly wrong. Your survivor vanishes from history. They are dead and archive their gear. I don't think we need to say to anyone how bad that is. That's not just you losing a survivor. That's losing gear. And losing gear in Kingdom Death is really bad. On a 5 to 8, nothing happens. On a 9 to 10, you write your name and you feel restored. Heal all injury levels and lost armor points and gain two survival. Decent. You feel uh, on 11 to 14, you feel assured that as long as your name is in the book, nothing bad can happen to you. You can choose to gain two of the following. Plus two courage, plus two understanding, or plus two survival. Which is likely to be plus two courage, plus two understanding most of the time, but, you know, it all depends on the circumstances. And finally, on a 15 plus, you leave an undeniable mark on the world. You feel more substantial. You gain one understanding, one courage, one survival, one permanent speed, and one permanent strength. So this event is very cool, and it is also very heavily linked into the law of Kingdom Death. And I'm not sure how much I should talk about it here because I have talked about it in the past when we talked about the Kingsman, I think it was. And I talked a little bit about the scribe there. But enough to say here, without going to spoilers, this is like a, a big hint, a big clue. And this is a kind of hunt event that is worth you thinking about if you don't already know what this stands for. Um, and it's very fun. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a cool one. Have you guys encountered the book and ever actually successfully used it? Not on stream, but off stream we have, and we did it with, like, a full Ageless party. So we got, you know, all the good, cool stuff from it. But, yeah, it's, it's a fun event. I, I totally forgot how bad the low rolls were because the parties we always had were high-understanding parties. So, uh we never had that worry. So, Matt, you want to go on to the next event for us? 85, the Test of Courage. Ooh, the Test of Courage. <clears throat> Lava flows from the eyes of a huge, grimacing stone face. Its gritted teeth appear to hold a worn sword. If there are any survivors with six-plus courage, choose one brave enough to one to brave the lava and gain the adventure sword gear. Each settlement may only possess one adventure sword. If no survivor gains the sword, roll again on the hunt event table before moving on the hunt board. So what's the adventure sword? It's uh, three speed, six plus accuracy, zero strength. It's unique and irreplaceable. Your courage is added to this weapon's strength. So you want to have a high courage survivor to wield this, in other words. Yes. So we've actually never got this, so Fen, tell us a little bit about the adventure sword, because I'm pretty sure you've used it a bit. You you really answered incorrectly for the start. I'm so ashamed of you. Matt, would you uh, like to ask me again the question about the sword? Oh, I know you're going to hate it because it's three speed. No, no, no. You know, what did you ask, Josh? What? Uh, have you used it before? Do you like it? <laughs> <laughs> you asked it. 
you asked him what the invention is. Oh, so, yes, I'm, I'm not sure. What What is this from? <laughs> okay, this is Jake's sword from, um, uh, you know, uh, from Adventure Time. Hence the name, the Adventure Sword, the design of it, everything, the courage, the whole thing. This is this is a reference to Adventure Time. Uh, sorry, Finn Sword. Okay, right, Finn Sword. Um, it's it's wonderful. It's a really fun sword. It's a nice reference. It's full of character. It looks cool. Uh, it's super hard to get. Um, the getting it from this hunt event is the easiest way to get it, but you can get it uh, from hunting one of the legendaries as well. So um, I'm I was just a little disappointed that neither of you were aware of why it's called the Avenger Sword and the reference, but you know um, I guess you're both you know you, you haven't watched Adventure Time, so yeah, <laughs> so be it. But yeah, it it is it's great. It's it's a good sword and um, the speed on it is yeah you know it's kind of sucky, but the fact that you can have like this could be a strength nine weapon is uh, is not bad at all. So yeah, all in all. Fun event, wonderful, great fun, and uh, I, I really like this. I mean, at a minimum, when you get the sword this way, it's going to be um, a six-strength sword, so that's that's great. I find it a little weird that it says each settlement may only possess one adventure sword on the text for he- test of courage, considering it has the unique keyword anyway. That's possibly redundancy from earlier design. Maybe we'll see that line removed from 1.5. Um, but yeah, it's it's just cool. It's a nice way to get a powerful weapon around the mid-game. And unlike the steel sword, you can't get this too early on, so it won't distort your game. It's kind of a balanced event. So yeah, apart from my disappointment in both of you, uh, this is a great event. All right. So the next event we have is eighty-eight, another item, another event that gives us some rare gear. Uh, so eighty-eight is the sword and the statue. A statue twice as tall as any man sits before a great anvil with a hammer in each of its six hands. Transfix the survivors watch the statue beat a red-hot sword that lies across the anvil. Each survivor, starting with the event revealer and moving clockwise, may attempt once to grab the sword from the anvil. If a survivor makes an attempt, they gain plus one courage and roll on the table, adding their hunt experience to the result. Uh, end the event if a survivor successfully takes the sword. So on a 1-2, to two, as you get close to the anvil, the statue grabs hold of the sword and plunges it into your body. There is a sharp hiss as the hot metal cools in your blood. You are dead. 3-8, uh, to eight, you make a quick grab for the sword, but not quick enough. Gain the dismembered severe arm injury. So he cuts your arm off. 9-13, to 13, you may not be quick enough to grab the sword, but at least you're not foolish enough to lose your hand at trying. And then, if you roll a 14+, your speed is legendary. Gain the Muramasa gear. So, what's the Muramasa gear? It's a 6 speed, 6 plus accuracy, 6 strength. It's got frail, sharp, sentient, deadly 2, and it's unique. And when you critically wound with this weapon, gain 2 bleeding tokens. And this is a Chrono Trigger reference, if I'm correct. Right, Fen? Um, No, the Chrono Trigger one is a reference itself. Um, the actual Muramasa was Muramasa Sengo. He um, founded the Muramasa Sword uh, School. Sorry, um, I think he was alive somewhere in somewhere between the 14th and 15th or 16th centuries. Um, the sword uh, is a school of sword making, and they made like incredibly famous swords. There's one of them at the Tokyo National Museum. Um, it's along with 
they're like the most famous swords in Japan, along with uh, Masume, Masamune, Masamune swords. My pronunciation is not great on that. So yeah, it's um, well, yeah, there is one in Chrono Trigger, but the, you'll see um, the Romasa and the Masamune swords appear over and over in many different places, and their references to Japanese culture, um, and and so on. So it's it's actually a very interesting read for those people who want to see a little bit more about it. Um, but the the legend is that once drawn, a Muramasa blade has to draw blood before it can be returned to its scabbard, even to force to the point of forcing its wielder to wound himself or commit suicide. Thus, it's thought of as being a demonic cursed blade that creates bloodlust in those who wield it. So this is where the sentient comes in on this. Um, frail, I think, is the reference to sort of the fact that these blades are quite frail because the swords of the period were not fantastically made. The iron was not great. That these wonderful swords are made out of, um, but yeah, it's uh, as garbage as the stats are on this thing. I appreciate it for all of the flavour and character that it has. Um, I've never had it in a campaign, um, and I mean, you know, katana mastery—that's <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting mastery in itself, which we'll talk about in the future. But yeah, it's um. It's uh, it was interesting to see this in here, and it's very clear of Poots's love of things Japanese. That's why we've got it around. So yeah, there we are. That's uh, that's my history education, like brief kind of outline type thing. Um, I'm not an expert on this sword or this um, sets of swords, but yeah, there you are. Um, I don't, I, as I, say, I haven't ever had a chance to use it. Um, but I, there is a use for the Muramasa if you combine it with an item from the Spidicules. Uh, it has an extra couple set of benefits, so yeah. Um, interesting stuff. I guess you guys have never had it, because this is quite hard to get. Person? Yeah. Oh, okay. I think we actually did get it in one campaign, but we never used it just because of that whole uh, gain two bleeding tokens when you crit on it. Uh, that's pretty awful. And you're chucking a ton of dice. Um, yeah, I'm just saying. Also, it's six dice that you're attacking with, which is absolutely silly. I know that that's Fen's favorite way to play. Roll as many dice as possible when attacking. So maybe, oh, yeah. yeah, maybe use it when you get around to it. But, you know, that's that's not particularly our cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, um, it's strong, but just that's that's a lot of dice. Six dice is a lot of dice. And, and you're hitting on a six plus. That's... A 50-50 shot, so you have, you're going to average three, three hits. hits. Which isn't horrible, but it isn't. Yeah, but just one turn, you possibly having to draw six different hit location cards. Yeah. It's pretty awful. And then if you accidentally crit three times... You're dead. With deadly two. Yeah. So 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 you get a bleed token for eight plus, so 30% of the time. You that's, are doing a wound? That's rough. That's really rough. Yeah, but uh, as as an aside, uh, Matt did. Um, I know you were joking about speed, but did Josh tell you about the um, the survivor I accidentally built and took into a fight one time um, with regards to speed? Um, I don't know if you remember, Josh. Do you remember I, when I told you about the guy I couldn't attack with? Yeah, the insane guy from. Uh, was it the insane guy that had something yeah. about? Yeah, it was a guy who had uh, he, he had to roll a thousand dice to attack with. <laughs> that was that was quite an experience. Does that even work? I'll talk about it when we get to the Lion God. But 
uh, it was <laughs> you'll see it, but it was quite uh, quite quite funny. And I actually, if I even if I'd given him spears, there's no way it would have worked. It was weird. Anyway, uh, you're right. This is like a kind of weapon that well, you just you can kill yourself wielding it, which is thematically very accurate. You have to build very carefully to try and make this work. But there are ways that you can avoid dying through bleeding or at least limit the chances of dying through bleeding from certain fighting arts. So with expansions, this weapon becomes more interesting when you draw it. All right. So next up, Ben, you want to take this one? Event 89, the cleaner birds. Yeah, sure. So, cleaner birds, tiny ragged birds with needle-thin beaks fly overhead. Every survivor must roll a d10. The lowest-scoring survivor, who roll off in a case of ties, becomes a straggler. The birds swarm the straggler. One bird forces its way down the straggler's mouth and down their throat. The straggler vomits up the well-fed bird. Their insides scrambled and scarred. Suffer a minus one permanent speed and plus one permanent luck. So we talked about this before. This is a trade that every single one of us is all for making. Cleaner birds are amazing. I really want to run into them some more so I can reduce the number of speed on my survivors and have more luck. Heck, you know, I've got deadly three and one luck right now. Minus one speed. Give, send more cleaner birds my way, please. It's an event, I think, that was felt when they designed it that this was like balanced because the design team clearly values speed more than um, a lot of the community do. Um, but as it turns out in practice, this is amazing. This is just like great. I would even consider using like paired weapons with a, you know, if, if I got hit by a cleaner birds, you know, because three speed with extra luck is around the threshold of acceptability. I prefer two, but you know, Three with say beast claw guitars, fantastic. So yeah, it's uh, it's definitely one I like, and I imagine Matt, I imagine you'd be fairly happy with this, with the way you like to play. Oh, absolutely. You know, we uh, we always go for the high luck builds, and um, we actually had in a previous campaign, I think, I think we had someone get the cleaner birds two or three times. Yeah, so they were just like, I don't care what weapon you give them, they're rolling one die, and uh, they've got plus three natural luck. Yes. So then you add in a deadly weapon and maybe a luck charm, and I think that was our guitar master. No, it, it was our bow person, and we were um, going to give them the death mask, and they died oh, right before we could do it. right. So they would have been critting on essentially two plus. two plus. Yes. It was a stupid, stupid build. It was a fun build. It was a fun build. I don't know how we managed to roll that so many times, but I wasn't complaining at the time for sure. No, that, that's never a bet we uh, we were mad about. Yeah. All right, we got a couple events left. Um, getting some of the interesting ones. Uh, 97 is Living Stone. And that's the ground suddenly shifts and rises sharply in the air. The survivors find themselves clutching the, bl- the back of a giant creature that lay sleeping beneath their feet. Every survivor <clears throat> rolls a d10. On a 6+, they hold on. All other survivors plummet to the ground below and archive their fragile gear. Survivors who fall take one event damage to a random hit location and continue the hunt as normal. If some survivors hold on, they are absent from the rest of the hunt phase and rejoin the group when the showdown starts. Elect one of the survivors to roll on the table. So, a 1, you plummet into the darkness. All survivors who held on are dead. 2 to 4, fall off. Survivors who held on rejoin the other survivors on the ground and take one event damage on each location. 5 to 8, circle back. Survivors who held on each gain one founding stone gear and join the showdown in the second round. 
And then on a 9+, plus, heroes arrive first, survivors who held on rejoin at the beginning of the showdown phase and ambush the monster. We had something weird happen with this before, and I can't remember what. We had this happen twice in our first season. Like, almost back-to-back. That's right. I like, think on the same hunt, too. It, no? it might have been the same hunt. Like, oh, we found another stone. We're going to have more people jump on it. And then, like, everyone was just on stones. And I think that's what happened. Or, no, there was one person left that had to go through the rest of the hunt by themselves. That's what it was. It was one person rolling all of the hunt events, and they almost got killed because, obviously, if you have one person rolling four or five different hunt events, because it was pretty late in the season, so we were fighting a level two or three something. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was... Everyone just joined in the second round of the showdown and was like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> so like, I'm dying here, please save me. <laughs> so, uh, Fen, have you had Livingstone happen? Uh, once or twice, yes. Um, it's, uh, it's a bit of a messy event that usually causes a lot of chaos and problems for people. Um, I think it's worth noting that if you plummet and fall down, fragile gear is actually a top-of-the-gear card keyword, not frail. It's easy to get those two mixed up because effectively they mean the same thing in general terms and use, but fragile gear is very different. The ink swords, for example, are fragile, but they're not frail, and it would suck to lose ink swords. But yeah, this is um, this is a pretty bad event overall. It's got some fun benefits on the top end. Uh, it's certainly one of the ones we would consider re-rolling at times because the uh, plummet into darkness, the elected survivor and whatnot is just like, oof, you know, pretty bad. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a fun image. And again, it's filled with lots of character, like many of these hunt events are. But uh, it's pretty frightening to deal with this. Also, in People of the Lantern, if you end up with a giant pile of founding stones, as we mentioned before when we talked about the Watcher, you can trivialize the Watcher fight. And this is one of the ways you do get a lot of founding stones. You can have a massive amount of them piled up. So, yeah. Uh, interesting theme. But I'd rather have something else happen. Yeah, it's, it's not great. Um, it's interesting, but as you were saying, it usually points to a little bit of confusion happening and, like, when do people come back in and what's actually going on. So uh, it's a little bit of a headache when it does happen. Uh, so moving on, event number 99 is the Portcullis. Okay, can I hold you there for a moment? Go for it. Right, so I have gone, and I have dug out a couple of bits of pieces of history here. Um, before we talk about portcullis, we're going to get into why it's a portcullis and basically what these two events are. So I'm going to read some text from a little card from a game that I've had for a number of years that I'm very fond of. Um, This text may sound familiar to you. Slumped against the wall, the warriors find a dying dwarf prospector. Riddled with orc arrows, as they approach, he growls a warning, threatening them with a huge axe. When he sees that they are not orcs or evil creatures, he calms down and gives them the key. With his dying breath, he says, this is the key to the portcullis. Without it, you'll never get through. One of the players should keep this card to remind you that his warrior has the key. And then we've got another encounter entitled Portcullis, which is once all warriors have entered this section, a portcullis slams behind them, cutting them off. They can only retrace their steps if they have the key. And it places a portcullis marker on the board. So... That is why this event is about a massive portcullis. That is why this event has a key. That is why the previous one is called the Dying Prospector, because 
basically, this is um, Adam Poots paying homage to one of the games that has influenced a lot of the design in this game at the bottom. There's many sections where uh, you will find that actually um, Kingdom Death has evolved from and in some cases just directly borrowed from. But uh, I doubt this is a game either of you have played. This is the original 1995 Warhammer Quest, which I picked up in 2008 because I wanted a dungeon crawler I could play solo or without a GM. And yeah, the whole, while the portcullis itself, as we'll see now when we go ahead, deviates from the design of the original portcullis, the idea of having to get the key first and then the portcullis randomly happening to you. And basically the text from the dying prospector is all comes from Warhammer Quest. So there you are, everyone. That's a little bit of gaming history for you and something you can know about the where Kingdom Death has drawn a lot of its mechanical inspiration from. Anyway, um, let's get off that now and go on to the portcullis itself, which I believe, Matt, you were going to tell us about. Yeah, but that was awesome, Fed. Thank you for that. I didn't know that. That's pretty sweet. Um, but yeah, so the portcullis. The survivors approach a massive portcullis standing in the darkness. It is not attached to anything and does not bar the way. They may choose to walk around it. If they do, roll again on the hunt event table before moving to the next space on the hunt board. If the survivor settlement has the portcullis key, they may use it. Each survivor gains plus one courage, the portcullis creaks open, and the survivors step through. So then, you're going to roll a d10. Um, if you are so lucky to roll one, inside a dark, a, a dank gloom awaits the survivors. The portcullis suddenly slams shut behind them, and the lights of their lanterns begin to dim. The last thing the survivors see is the grimace of fear on each other's faces. As the dark closes in, the survivors are dead. So that would be miserable. (laughs) Uh, If you roll a 2+, plus, so anything but that 1, inside a dank gloom awaits the survivors. So still a dank gloom. But at their feet lies an ornate crucible with a void in the shape of a mighty weapon. The survivors gain the perfect crucible strange resource. If they have a blacksmith in their settlement, they may now craft a perfect slayer. So, Josh, I know you you tend to like this weapon a little bit. We've never played with it, but you know a little bit about it. So you want to go ahead? So, yeah, this the, the perfect slayer is a homage to Berserk, and uh, a Kingdom Death takes a lot from Berserk. So this this is Guts' weapon. It's kind of a sword. The, kind of. The, anime and the manga like to talk to it as a slab of metal um, because it's a six foot long, one foot wide probably like four inches thick of pure steel. So yeah, it's light and very, you know nimble, right? So uh, we talked about this slightly before but this is a three speed, six plus accuracy 14 strength Um, it's got slow, sharp, devastating two, irreplaceable and minus two movement so this also is a grand weapon and a sword. Yes. So that's something else to take into account there. So you can apply both the grand weapon and sword masteries to this? Yes. So, Fan, how, how do you feel about the Porcolos and the uh, Perfect Slayer? Well, um, first of all, one of the interesting things I'd just like to say is, um, while clearly the Perfect Slayer is a reference to, um, to Guts, the Messenger of Humanity, if you look at the scenario in three uh, in the 3119 book, which is on the Kingdom Death store of the old scenarios, the Messenger of Humanity wields a Dragon Slayer um, rather than the Perfect Slayer, which is especially weird because when you look at the design of the scenario, 
you will see that um, his abilities and whatnot, he's got Berserker and he's got Bitter Frenzy and everything like that. It feels like he was supposed to be wielding the Perfect Slayer because he's got all of the stuff to unlock the Perfect Slayer fully as it's supposed to be. But he has a, a Dragon Slayer instead of a Perfect Slayer. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I have in my solo campaign the Crucible and I have not bothered to make the Perfect Slayer yet. I should get round to it at some point, but I've got so many, you know, uh, I've got like several Griswoldos, so I'm kind of not sure where I would put the Perfect Slayer into the mix. It is interesting and nice that this is a sword and a grand weapon. Um, but on the whole, those two weapon masteries don't mesh very well together without Bitter Frenzy on top of that. And Bitter Frenzy is the ability to use uh, weapon masteries and the like while you are um, frenzied. Normally you can't. So a perfect Slayer bit of frenzy grand weapon master would be incredible. Um, they would have or with a perfect Slayer, I think like four speed accuracy, five plus of course, strength then would effectively be 15 plus whatever stats they had naturally. Um, and if whenever they score a crit, they'd knock the monster down and there's other things that grand weapon mastery does um, on perfect hits. I think it is. I can't remember, I've got Grand, Mastery, Grand Weapon Mastery in front of me, and I normally only care about the specialization, so that's why I can't recall off the top of my head. I say the only problem with the Perfect Slayer is the minus two movement. Um, three movement is pretty difficult to, to deal with, but uh, yeah, this is a very cool weapon. It's a nice reference, and it is kind of a nice reward that people are going to see very rarely, because you have to get the two events happening in the right order. My Thursday group, we've got the Portcullis Key, but we've never had the Portcullis Land. Um, we could actually craft the Perfect Slayer and toss all of the plebs. Um, plebs are people without constellations, for those people who are not aware of the terminology. Um, we could toss all of the plebs into the cru- Crucible and make the Perfect Slayer out of them. That'd be fantastic. But yeah, it's um, it's very cool. And I do hope you guys get to run around with it on stream at some point in the future, because I know Josh would make you super happy. Yeah, this would be fun to play with. So we have one more event. In fact, I'm going to let you do the last one, because uh, apparently you, you love this event and you get it all the time. I do not love this event, but this event is super cool. Uh, it's just wearing on me in our current campaign because um, we're up to five counts of it happening now. So this is the finale. A terrific thunder crashes in the distance. An electrifying dread washes over the survivors. All survivors suffer two brain event damage. These survivors may choose to investigate. Otherwise, they panic and retreat in the opposite direction. Move back to hunt spaces on the hunt board and continue hunting as normal. If the survivors investigate, all survivors gain one courage and gingerly approach the origin of the sound. As they travel, they pass the shattered corpses of strange beasts. If any survivor has three plus understanding, they follow the trail of corpses. Otherwise, draw three basic resources harvested from the corpses and end the event. Now, even at this point, that's actually quite a good result. Plus one courage... Three basic resources, get on with it. However, if the survivor does have three plus understanding, if the survivors arrive this far, they see a massive knight, his armor reflecting a gold worn in their lantern light. Caked in blood, the knight leans against the side of a titanic winged creature. The event revealer must roll on the table. On a one, the knight locks eyes of the survivors. If any survivor has less than three courage, they are struck dead. All of the survivors flee in horror. On a two to eight, the knight speaks. 
its thunderous voice quakes the ground. Any survivors with less than three understandings suffer the death severe injury. The knight extends its arms, offering them his gear. The survivor with the highest courage, roll off in case of ties, gains the steel sword and the steel shield gear. On a nine plus, the knight's chest heaves. He exhales a plume of dense black smoke that covers the survivors. When it clears, the knight is gone, and in his place is a massive lion-faced hammer. The survivor with the highest courage, roll off in the case of ties, gains the Thundermore gear. When the survivor takes it in their hand, a current of electricity runs through their body. The weapon and the survivor are joined forever, because the Thundermore is cursed. Josh, would you like to read out the Thundermore stats for us? It's a two-speed, six-plus accuracy, ten strength. It's a uh, club, two-handed. It's irreplaceable, unique, and cursed. On a perfect hit, the monster is knocked down, suffer a severe arm injury. All non-deaf survivors suffer one brain damage. Why a severe arm injury? <laughs> because the um, gold smoke knight is like 12 foot tall, and this thing echoes out thunder and explosions when you swing with it. It's You're not supposed to be wielding it. You're really not built for it. So yeah, uh, balance-wise... It's not really needed, but it does sort of result in strange things happening because basically to use the Thundermore correctly, you want the um, hard breastplate from the Vagabond set, which allows you to ignore severe injury, and you want to have um, dried acanthus in your gear grid and whatever else you can to mitigate it. Otherwise, you just can't use this weapon. But it is cool. The Gold Smoke Knight is due to be the big bad guy um, coming up, the final one for people of the Lantern, we have seen an image which showed a survivor in Lantern armor clashing Thundermalls with the Gold Smoke Knight. So there may be a special secret Easter egg event that occurs when a survivor with a Thundermall attacks the Gold Smoke Knight, who of course will be using another Thundermall as that, that's his weapon. Um, so yeah, it's uh, this is very cool event-wise. This is very cool thematically. However. I have had a survivor with one of these uh, stuck in her grid, and it was it sucked. I always had to carry two weapons around, um, a second club, which was a riot mace. I love riot maces. Um, but because I couldn't rely on using the Thunder Maul all the time, because the moment I had no way to soak up severe arm injuries, I was sort of like, uh, okay, so each of my dice has a 10% chance of generating a 20% chance of death or dismembered arms, and if you get a dismembered arm, you can't use the Thundermore. Eventually, my survivor became superstitious and refused to use this anymore. So, you know, job done there. But still, uh, it's like, I kind of like the theme of this, but in practice, I prefer to have the Thunderball foisted onto somebody else in my group and not ever have to deal with it myself. So, um to talk about the other bits and pieces, we already mentioned the steel sword and steel shield. Kind of sucks to have the steel shield dumped on you, but the steel sword is not a bad price to pay for that. Uh, and you'll be very slow and tanky for one fight, and then you can chuck them in the stack, in the stash, and, and use them as and when required. So it's just kind of the fundamental um, being cursed is a bit of a limitation, um, and it can be a problem if it lands on somebody who's very late in the aging and doesn't have the ability to gain mastery. I think the changes to club mastery for 1.5 uh, may be to make the Thundermore more interesting and useful because club mastery originally was about using paired clubs um, and now it's more about using big, heavy, mega hard hitting clubs. So that may be a reason. Anyway, did, have you guys uh, had a Thundermore yet? 
No, we've never actually managed to get this. Uh, I want to make a note that this is the event you get to call when you take barbaric. Yeah. Instead of romantic. Instead of romantic. So you can uh, call the thunder down. So that's all the random basic hunt events. That we wanted to go through at least. That we want to go through at least. That's not all of them. There's a lot more. Uh, But there's a couple extra things that happen during the hunt event that we want to touch down. So let's... I think first we should go to Overwhelming Darkness because... Everyone loves Overwhelming Darkness. Um, I think maybe we should actually just talk a bit about the hunt event design as a whole. Um, Because we sort of talked about the individual events and we talked about the hunt cards separately. But it would be nice to explain the framework on which the hunt event is hung about. Um, And then we can get to Overwhelming Darkness around in the middle, if that's that's okay with you guys. Because obviously starvation has to be thought about. Yeah, yeah, let's go ahead. You want to start that off? Um, okay, yeah, well, so the hunt event phase is, uh, it has its own separate board and you lay out the cards and you will be told whether to put a monster specific card on a spot or whether to put a generic hunt event card, which isn't automatically a basic hunt event anymore. Um, because we do have some promos that have given us alternative basic hunt events with extra little wrinkles in them. They're very cool. Uh, once that's laid out, you put the monster on whichever position it's supposed to be, regardless of its level, level 1, level 2, level 3. It'll be further back the higher the level it is. And um, in the middle of the track is Overwhelm with Darkness, which we'll talk about. Um, the survivors then take it in turns to place their model particular um, hunt event, turn it up, deal with it, and then, you know, if they successfully resolve it and they don't get moved backwards, um, which a few hunt events can move you backwards, then the next survivor will go on to the next one. Once all four survivors have picked a hunt event, then any one of them can go on to the next one and so on and so forth. Um, now, how do you guys feel about the way the hunt event runs as a whole? I like I like the idea. It could be a little bit more polished. And we, we went over some of the really bad events that just kind of make it not fun. Um. But yeah, it, it it could use some polish. Matt? Matt left the room for just a second, so... Oh, I see how he feels about it. So he likes it so much he's gone off to have a quick hunt of his own. Yeah, something like that. But no, um, for, I mean, it's one of the things that, you know, it's something we have to do, and it's mostly harmful, and it really isn't... You don't get too many benefits from it, typically. It's, t- it's typically just to make your fight harder at later. What about the experience of actually going through it? Do you find it particularly engaging and fun part of the game? It's probably the most lacking part of the game. Um, it's something we probably go through pretty quickly. We read the text. We do. We roll results, see what happens, and move on. We kind of don't sit and think about it too much as it's pretty straightforward roll-move kind of thing. Yeah. Well, um, I do have like a few additional comments, but I think it'd be nice to have Matt's uh, opinion before we do move on uh, on this. Do you know he's gonna, if he's going to be much longer? Um, let's move on ahead without him. I don't know how long he's going to be. So, Fair enough. Okay, so um, for me, and I'm going to be on a little rant for a while here, guys. I'm going to try not to get too salty about it. But the um, hunt event is the single weakest part of the entire game. It's 
it's a very old archaic piece of design. Now, I talked about just now with Portcullis and with the Dying Prospector that this is that's a reference to, to Warhammer Quest. Now, the Hunt event is almost a section of Warhammer Quest lifted out and then retooled and admittedly refined a bit, but not refined enough. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Warhammer Quest for a moment to give you the, the background. Now, Warhammer Quest is primarily a dungeon crawling game, and a lot of the action happens within that. But once you've finished a completed a quest for a dungeon, you will step out into the uh, the light, and you'll make a decision about which settlement you're going to go and visit. You have a choice to go visit a village, a town, or a city. Uh, funnily enough, three choices. You know, maybe that's starting to ring a few bells there. So you've got three choices. Uh, now the settlement is two weeks away. The city, the town is four and the city is six weeks away. And you will have to roll a number of times on a table equal to the number of weeks you're going. This is the journey table. And this is one of the most frustrating parts of the Warhammer Quest design. Now, the whole aim of it, and it did achieve and succeed at this, was the further you traveled, the more chance you had of your journey failing and you being forced to return to a, a dungeon and start adventuring without having spent your money and improved and bought new gear and maybe leveled up. So that was the aim of it. It was a risk-reward scenario of, okay, well, we want to go to the city. We want the best places, the best gear is in the city, the best locations are in the city, best chance of finding all the good stuff. But we have got to get through six weeks of horrible journeying to get there. We could take the town as a compromise, or if we just want to buy, go in and buy a few healing gear or whatever, then we can go to the settlement. Now, effectively, when you take that apart, what you've got is a track with six spaces on it. On space two, well, sorry, on space three, because you've got what, space one, something happens, week one, space two, something happens, week two, space three would be the, the village. Now, that is the same as the level one monster. This is what the hunt track is. The hunt track is this mechanic from Warhammer Quest repurposed. Now, I don't think Adam tried to do this. I don't think he had it in mind consciously when he designed the hunt event, but I think it's somewhere in his mind. And he has admitted um, a lot of, you know, well, overtly with the portcullis, he said Warhammer Quest was an influence. It's right there. But with this, um, it sort of influenced how he's designed the hunt event. So effectively, We've got the journey to the city, but instead of it happening at the end of an adventure, um, and instead of it being like the risk-reward is, well, if you mess up, then you're going to have to go straight on another adventure, and you're not going to get a chance to tool up. Uh, instead, it's like you have to walk along this punishing track and get more and more beaten up and be weaker by the time you reach the monster. That's a 1990s design. That is present in so many other things in this. There is roll one and you die. That's Warhammer Quest again. Roll one and you die is a Warhammer Quest thing. Um, rolling on the basic hunt event track is Warhammer Quest again. It's good that, except the Warhammer Quest chart was a D66 because they use games which will have their six-sided dice. Ultimately, I feel that the hunt event is archaic. I think this could be a much better part of the game. I think... We should have an expansion that ex that enlarges this entire experience, which is meaningful. Perhaps where one player scouts and there's like a couple of choices the cards could be and they pick one to have it put down. But uh, maybe they might draw a bad card that causes things to happen to the scout instead. You know, th that they have to encounter the entire thing by themselves. 
Um, I don't know. The encounter stuff that's been suggested for the Oblivion Mosquito coming ahead and the bits and pieces that are supposed to be in the Gambler's Chest encounters as well, this might be an attempt to add a bit more of a meaningful experience to the Hunt event. But ultimately, I feel the Hunt event is an archaic piece of gaming design. I Literally to the point that when the Hunt event happens, whenever we're playing... My brain switches off. I start working on setting up the monster and I let my friends all deal with the hunt event. And I, all I'm involved in is like landing on my card, reading out loud, rolling on the hunt event table, which Tom will read the actual stuff off if it, um, if it happens or Italia will, cause she will deal with the hunt event otherwise, cause she knows I, I'm not very interested in it. And the rest of the time I'm just head down setting up the monster. So th- that's where I land on this. I think along with the settlement event cards, which I did go off on one about in our last episode, this is the weakest part of the game. It could be more interesting. It could be better. It should be better. And I really want Adam and co to sit down and give us an expansion about the hunt with a new hunt board with some meaningful choices and decisions that actually feels like a hunt as opposed to, walking along pieces on the track. So anyway, there we are, Josh. That's my piece. I am done. All right. But no, no you do bring up a lot of fallow points, part of the hunt, and and the weaker parts of it. And hopefully the... Uh, it, it sounds like there might be some changes with the... Uh, the ugh, gambler chest? What is it called? Yeah, gambler chest? Yes, the gambler's chest. The, the, and... It's supposed to add a few bits and pieces in, um, and also they're rehauling the basic hunt events. I think they're looking at the balance on those. Well, obviously they are because of the whole feet thing and everything. Um, but I, I, I think they need to be more fundamental than that in the future. I think once they finish the Generation 2 expansions, they should actually look at really giving us a proper hunt event expansion. Matt, do you have anything else to add for about hunt events, your, your feelings about them? I don't. I think it covered pretty much everything with that. It was a little bit of a ramp, but it was interesting to say the least. So we want to go into the last few things, part of the hunt that we didn't discuss. So overwhelming darkness and uh, our harvesting events. Yay, overwhelming darkness! So Matt, what's what's overwhelming darkness? So halfway through the hunt board, you have overwhelming darkness. You can't skip it, if I remember correctly, right? There's no way to mitigate overwhelming darkness aside from fighting a level one monster. And assuming they'll run away from you. Yes. Um, but overwhelming darkness is something nasty is going to happen to you. Well, more than likely something nasty. If you roll really well, that's your only chance. Um, but there's three different uh, tracks that you get to roll on, and that's either the path of the insane, the path of the doomed, and the path of the brave. So if you're insane, you roll on the path of the insane. Uh, if you're just a normal old survivor, you roll on the path of the doomed. And if you have three plus courage, you roll on the path of the brave. You also have to be sane. Yeah, a sane survivor with three plus courage. Um, but yeah, so the they all differ a little bit in what they do. So for the path of the insane, you they're all a d10. Path of the insane, a one through three, you envision a strange fruit that pulses with your heartbeat. You smash it, spend all of your survival, or die. You have to spend at least one. Yeah, and it's it's pretty horrible having to burn all your survival before the hunt. So, And that's a one through three on uh, insane survivors. Uh, on a four, you shriek into the darkness dealing one brain event damage to all non-deaf survivors. So you deal one brain damage to everyone else. Not really a bad thing. 
Not really that horrible. Uh, five or six, you lash out at the unseen. All other survivors suffer one event damage to a random hit location. Earlier on in the game, that one damage can be a real pain, but as the game goes on and you have more armor, not quite that big of a deal. Uh, on a seven, startling visions gain a random disorder. Could be good, could be bad. Pretty random. Eight to nine, you find a strange piece, lose all insanity. So, again, could be good, could be bad, depending on what you're going for. And then finally, on a 10-plus, hysterical, suffer the frenzy brain trauma. So you're going to lose your ability to do your weapon masteries and proficiencies and spend your survival unless you have bitter frenzy. Um, but you get plus one speed token, plus one strength token. Yep. So pretty nice, and you ignore slow on weapons as yes. well. Which is a pretty big thing, really. Uh, so then moving on to the Path of the Doomed, D10 also. If you roll a one, your inner lantern light fades into the darkness. Uh, spend all of your survival or die, at least one. So same thing, but it's only on a one here, so not quite as bad. Uh, on a two through three, though, uh, a pall of doom falls over you. Gain minus three luck tokens for the duration of the showdown. So you're not going to crit, pretty much. Yep. That's that's happened to us on multiple times where we get that on our crit survivor, and we just hate our lives at that point. On a 4 through 6, an unseen monster attack suffer event damage equal to the quarry's level to three random hit locations. That's pretty nasty. Yep. So, especially if you're fighting a level 3, you're taking 9 damage in in the hunt phase before you even get to the fight. Uh, on a 7, disoriented, gain a minus 1 evasion token. And evasion tokens are a hot commodity, so... That's pretty bad, too. Mm-hmm. And then on an 8+, hope, gain plus 1 insanity and plus 1 courage. The nice thing about being a sane, not-so-brave survivor is it's an 8+, for you to get what is considered a good roll there. Yeah. So, yay for being sane and not brave. Yep. And then finally, the path of the brave. If you roll a 1, you boldly walk into a monster's maw and are consumed whole. Spend all your survival, at least 1 or die. So all three have that same worse effect. Yes. Uh, however, insane is the one through three on that. So, yeah. yeah. On a two to three, you emerge from the darkness crippled without doubt. With doubt, gain minus one speed token. I don't mind that. Not too bad. Uh, four through seven, the darkness drowns your lantern light. Gain minus one accuracy token. I hate that. It's not horrible, but it's not good. Yeah, but I just... I get really frustrated when I get minus accuracy tokens because I want to hit the monster, damn it. <laughs> um, and then on an 8 to 9, Foolish Bravery gain plus 1 strength token and minus 1 evasion token. That's bad, too. I would not like to get minus evasion tokens unless it happens to be your ranged guy who's just, you know, hiding out in, a dis- in the distance. And then on a 10+, plus, you will survive no matter what it takes. Gain plus one survival, plus one evasion token. That's really nice. Getting plus one evasion from overwhelming darkness, and that's happened to us a handful of times. That is a very nice, unexpected benefit right there. But it's a 10+. plus. It's a 10+, plus, so you're, you're probably not going to get it. But if you do get it, it, it makes the hunt for you. And uh, Ben, how is your feelings about overwhelming darkness? I find it kind of interesting that uh, within uh, the expansions we've had released currently, there's actually a better version of this event that is in two of the expansions. It's more interesting. And doesn't have roll one and you die plastered all over it, which is uh, a great example of one of the worst parts of Kingdom Death's design is rocks fall and you die, roll one and you die. So 
I don't like overwhelming darkness at all. Um, about the only things that are interesting is that you can build um, support gear for the hunt specifically, such as the sickle, the bone sickle, to rebuild survival after you've been through this. Because, you know, 10% of the time, anyone who rolls on most of these tables, and 30% if you're insane, uh, they're going to have lost all their survival. Um, or they're going to have needed to gain survival before they come to overwhelming darkness. So herb gathering is one such tool. Um, the Manhunter actually has a tool as well that is beneficial for dealing with this, so we can talk about that when we talk about the Manhunter. But yeah, um, this is the kind of design I don't like. It's just random stuff happening to you randomly, and all you're really looking to do is mitigate it either before or after the fact as much as you can. Um, you know, like... It's also like a bit of a question as to what's better. See, it almost feels sometimes like walking path of the brave is worse than walking path of the insane, even though there's a higher chance of dying. A lot of the rest of the stuff that happens on path of the insane is not too bad at all. So, yeah, um, I'd rather go through the forest gate any day. Yeah, it's it's one of those. It, it just sucks to do, and there's there's not much. Besides making lantern armor, which allows you to ignore overall in darkness, there's not much you could do to mitigate it. So since you talked about herb gathering, why don't we go into that event next? Because that's something else that happens on the hunt. So Matt, you want to take us through some uh, gathering of herbs? Let's gather all the herbs. So each survivor must make a special gathering roll. To make a gathering roll, uh, a survivor nominates any number of D10s and then rolls them. It's weird that it says it like that nominates any number of D10s. If two or more die results are the same, your score is zero. Otherwise, add all of your die results to determine your gathering score. Add all of the survivor's gathering scores to make a single final score and consult the herb exploration table. Add plus 10 to the final score if the survivors have passed the overwhelming darkness space on the hunt board. So note, this is a card you get to put on the board if you have a sickle in your gear grid. Right. So you kind of place it where you want it. So you can say, I want this over after Overwhelm in Darkness. And this is where you'll see in a second how it helps kind of counter that. So if you roll a 0 to 11, the survivors don't find anything, roll a random hunt event. Okay. Uh, 12 to 44, gain a fresh Acanthus, and all survivors gain plus one survival. Uh, on a 45 to 74, gain a fresh Acanthus, all survivors gain a survival. And if you innovated cooking, gain one random vermin resource. And then finally, if you roll a 75 plus, the survivors find a path through the weeds. Any survivor with a sickle may explore the swamp. So then when you explore the swamp, you need to roll a d10. And there's more stuff that could happen. So on a 1, a huge waterlogged plant creature bursts from the depths and devours you whole. You are dead. 2 and 3. Suddenly the water around you bubbles furiously. Spend one survival to dive to safety or perish. If you have 3 plus courage, you may roll again. Uh, 4 and 5. You find a captivating clearing. Roll on this table again and add plus 1 to the result. Any survivors that have not explored may now also roll on this table. So that's pretty cool that it allows other people to go and it prevents you from dying on the table. Uh, 6 and 7. A ghostly flower blooms, uncovering a face inside. It tells you that you are a peaceful, careless flower. I get that all the time, actually. Uh, And then remove any disorders and gain the apathetic disorder. 
On an 8, you observe a small insect pollinating a flower, gain plus 1 understanding, and a fresh acanthus strange resource. On a 9, you find a round, hairy fruit and consume it. If you are insane, you imagine the fruit bestows swiftness, gain plus 1 permanent speed, otherwise gain plus 1 survival. That's uh, plus 1 speed. Icky. And then on a 10, deep in the swamp, you find a twisting vine in the shape of a withered hand holding a fruit. Seductive and repulsive, the shining fruit is a sight to behold. You must eat the fruit. If you cannot consume, nothing happens. But then, if you eat the fruit, you know what you get to do? Get to roll dice again! Another d10. And that's another table of stuff that can happen. So if you happen to roll 75 plus in the beginning, and you have a sickle, or someone happens to roll a 4 or 5 with a sickle, and then you roll a 10, and your jaw's not broken, Mm -hmm. uh, you eat the fruit, and if the survivor consumes a second shining fruit, they die instantly. Otherwise, roll on the table. So you can only have one fruit in your life. You can only have one fruit in your life, yeah. So, on a 1, razor maggots explode from the survivor, killing them instantly. Uh, On a 2 to 4... An explosion of tiny red seeds burst in your mouth. You stagger, blinded by the overwhelming sensation. You are forever changed. Gain one permanent red affinity. That's really cool. Five to seven, tart, sticky green seeds scorch your sinuses before settling into a deliciously refreshing feeling. You are forever changed. Gain one permanent green affinity. And on an eight-plus bitter blue seed, stain your mouth with thick black juice. Their powerful flavor awakens you, and you are forever changed. Gain one permanent blue affinity. So that's an interesting one. We've never done that or come anywhere close to that before because I don't recall ever reading that. So, Fen, do you do you explore the swamp? Uh, absolutely, but it requires everybody to kind of buckle down and um, and work together because the mechanics of rolling uh, on the chart. Um, are quite awkward because if you're all only doubles then you get a result of zero so each survivor has to roll some dice separately the maximum number of dice you could roll theoretically is 10 but you'd have to roll all numbers different and you know don't ask me the odds on that because it's not very there's a lot of zeros one in an awful lot of you know zeros um so you need a group of people who are all willing to pack up um, sickles and get out together and, and you know, do this and have them all. Um, yeah, it is one of those areas of the, uh, of the game that I think not enough people explore yet because, as I think as you've just noticed, exploring the swamp is actually quite interesting, um, with, uh, especially if you get to the point where you can gain permanent affinity. And the nice thing about this is you can make sure that you're never going to eat the fruit a second time by ensuring that you you don't explore the swamp again. Because it's not even if you have a sickle, you're not forced to explore the swamp. You can choose not to. So there's a lot of interesting choices, even though it is roll on a table, roll on another table, roll on another table. Um, also, this is one of the few ways to really take advantage of cooking you want to go heavily into cooking and cooking is actually more powerful than you'd realize you have to be going herb exploring early and as often as you possibly can so i'm a huge fan of this i think it gets overlooked in exchange for mineral gathering a lot of the time but uh, i imagine over time over time more people will discover how powerful and interesting this actually is so that's how i feel about it i'm all for it you know, I will quite happily sacrifice four slots on a hunting party 
to get everybody out with sickles. The only problem is you kind of can't do sickles and pickaxes on everyone because that's like two slots out of uh, nine. That's a lot to um, dedicate. So yeah, I look forward to seeing you guys doing it a bit on uh, on on stream. It would be cool. Yeah, it would make us. We have to make a sickle at some point. We have to make leather. We haven't actually done that yet on this season. So Matt, you want to take us into uh, mineral gathering? I can certainly try. Let me find it in this book over here. So mineral gathering. Each survivor, or every survivor with a pickaxe, rolls on the mineral gathering table. So they're minerals, Marie. Minerals. Just waiting for that. Yeah, you knew it was coming. So first off, mineral gathering, you roll a d10. And on a one through three, a newly opened crack releases a toxic cloud. You flee, leaving your tools behind. Archive any tool gear in your gear grid. That kind of sucks. Uh, four to five, gain one broken lantern basic resource. A sudden rock slide catches everyone off guard. All survivors take two event damage to a random hit location. So all survivors, not just the exploring ones. Uh, six to seven, you find one iron strange resource among the unyielding stone faces. As you free it, you hear a snap. If your pickaxe is frail, archive it. And then on an 8+, gain one scrap basic resource. If this event occurs after overwhelming darkness, you find a cave. Once per mineral gathering, all survivors must descend to the worm tunnels. To the tunnels. To the tunnels. And so what do you do with the tunnels here? Roll d10. And you add plus one if you have a pickaxe. So on a 1, 2, or 3, you spend too much time lost in the tunnels. Move your quarry one space toward the survivors on the hunt board. If the monster enters the survivor's space, it ambushes them. On a four through seven, you blunder in the darkness, lost and separated from the other survivors. A voice whispers to you, leading you back, lose two survival, and gain two insanity. If you are deaf, you don't hear the voice, and you disappear into the dark. You're dead. And then on an eight plus, you find an iron strange resource next to a passageway that leads deeper into the cave. Choose to either gain the iron or spend two survival and descend to the crystal lake. So what do you do at the crystal lake? Roll d10! You do. So then on a one and two, drifting phosphorescent spores infect your pores. It's like kind of rhymey right there. Uh, record all armor gear in your gear grid in the settlement storage and archive it. Gain two armor to all hit locations and the following ability. You cannot place armor in your gear grid. When you depart, gain two armor to all hit locations. Suffer minus one to the result of all severe injury rolls. That's kind of rough, not being able to wear armor. Um, but if you have like Leyline Walker, yeah, if you have Leyline Walker, it's not that bad though. It gives you two armor. Uh, so then, on a three or four, a reflection speaks to you. Lose three survival and gain three insanity. Eh, I'm not a big fan of that one. Five and six, caked in slime and weird crystals, you find one Iron Strange resource. It's nice. Iron's nice. Seven plus, choose to either gain two Iron Strange resources or gain three insanity and spend four survival to descend to the Lantern City. So that's six survival you have to spend to get to this point. Yes. And, you know, it, you're trying to do this after Overwhelming Darkness, or you have to do it after Overwhelming Darkness, so you have to have a lot of survival. Lots of survival. But then what happens at the Lantern City? What do you do? Roll a d10. What else do you do? In <laughs> so on a d10, on a one... Two, three, and four. A single light shines from a window in the otherwise darkened city. A pleasing aroma beckons you into a lit house. Inside, a welcoming family invites you to join them for a meal. If you are insane, you gratefully accept their invitation to stay. Forever. 
Uh, your survivor perishes. Otherwise, your memory grows hazy after this point. Lose all your survival, gain six insanity, and one random disorder. On a five through eight, a yawning forge stands cold in the center of the city. Dismantling it, you gain four iron strange resources and three scrap basic resources. That's really nice. And then finally, on a ten plus, you meet a dark stranger. It hisses, and your mind washes over in white noise. You awake with one piece of armor of your choice from the blacksmith settlement location. So how handy is that one? It's interesting. I wish it was one piece of... I wish you could also get the, the shield from it, because that would be amazing. Yeah, that would be nice. So, Ben, your thoughts on mineral gathering? Right. So, first of all, uh, permission to refer to one of the expansions a couple of times? Uh, I'm, I'm assuming, assuming the Lion God. Or the DBK. The DBK. Yeah. yeah. So, first of all, you need a pickaxe to trigger this event, so that somebody's got to have a pickaxe. When you play this in the core game, this is a very frustrating experience, because as you can see, one to three, you lose your pickaxe, and you get nothing. On a six to seven, you have to trade your pickaxe for a piece of iron which you know you get iron that's great but again you've lost a um a, i think it's a leather and a bone is what you used to make a pickaxe um so uh, or is it yes leather and a bone yeah so that's like two resources to get one iron and it can be very wearing to try and get through all of this so one of the like kind of hidden reasons that the dung beetle knight is so well regarded is the dung beetle knight makes mineral gathering more tolerable and there are two reasons for this. The first one is the digging claw, which is a pickaxe in amongst its keywords. So you can't ha- you can't trigger mineral gathering with a digging claw, but you can use it for pickaxing. So only one person has to have a pickaxe. The digging claw is also not a tool. So if you've got a digging claw, you're not going to lose it on a one to three. It's not going to break on a six to seven. And also, importantly, during the Mineral Gathering Story event, you get to re-roll one of your D10s on any of this. So this gives you plenty of um, stuff to deal with. So that's like, if you want to explore Mineral Gathering properly, the Dung Beetle Knight is your best friend. Okay? And when we get to the Dung Beetle Knight expansion in full and we talk about lots of other bits and pieces, you're going to... I've got nothing but praise for that expansion at all. It's fantastic. But this it's like a... On top of everything else it does, it beefs up mineral gathering. The other thing is, as you mentioned, crystal skin, you can't wear armor, but there are two expansions that link into the crystal skin. Now, one of them is the Slender Man. We'll talk all about that when it happens. And the crystal skin is quite closely linked to um, some of the Slender Man crafting, which is interesting, but a little difficult to get to happen. But also, if you have crystal skin, you can wear the Dung Beetle Knight armor because it's not armor. It doesn't have the armor keyword. The entire set is not armor at all. So, again, the Dung Beetle Knight has another link into there. Um, that's why I wanted to at least talk about it a little bit here. Uh, now, one more thing. I don't know if you twigged on this. Results 1 to 4 in the Lantern City always kill you. Because on a 7+, plus, you gain 3 insanity and spend 4 survival. So you are insane when you go to the Lantern City 100% of the time, which makes me think that they something went wrong with the way they've designed this, because that's a little silly. Effectively, you are looking to roll a 5-plus in the Lantern City or die every time you go there. And frankly, I just take the 2-iron 
and go. Um, last of all, the final comment I have to say is um, the three scrap basic resources, there's no cards for these. Um, there's only two lanterns, broken lanterns, in the basic resource deck, so these are not um, broken lanterns from the resource deck. Scrap basic resources go straight into your settlement resource um, pile immediately. So you'll actually get these even if the hunt turns out to be a complete wipe because they have to be added into your settlement storage immediately. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the little bits and pieces I just wanted to say on this. Um, I think the uh, mineral gathering phase needs some work, and I hope it's getting a bit of a rehaul for 1.5 because there's a few questionable bits and pieces, and balance-wise, it's a little off and a little unfun without the Dung Beetle Knight to fix things up. And you shouldn't have to have an expansion to fix such an important thing because... You need to be mineral gathering if you're going to be making stuff from the blacksmith. So, there we are. I'm all done, guys. <laughs> so, do you, if you do mineral gathering without an expansion, before or after Overworld Darkness, do you want to go to the Worm Tunnels? Uh, you want to go to the Worm Tunnels, definitely, so you can get to some iron. Because you'll get one scrap, and then on 8+, you will get one iron. Um, and you're only likely to suffer something really bad if you're deaf. I think if you're deaf, you don't go into the worm tunnels. Uh, and you go as far as the Crystal Lake if you get the opportunity, definitely, to get the... Because um, so, effectively, that will give you one scrap and potentially three iron, which is really good. And, you know, actually, Crystal Skin is fun to have on someone, as you say. If you're a lane line walker, it's amazing. So, yeah. But I don't think you go to the Lantern City unless you're feeling, you know, you're a real gambler like Matt. So that's, that's all the hunt stuff. So, any, anything else uh, we want to talk about with the hunt stuff, or is that it, Ben? I think uh, I think the only last thing to mention is just um, starvation space, which is if the monster lands on the starvation space, you lose 1d5 re- resources from settlement storage, if I remember correctly. Um, and if currently, if the monster runs off the end of the board even further than that, then the hunt ends and you don't get anything. And I believe that is due to change in 1.5, so the monster won't run off the end of the board because people are finding it um, it's very frustrating and unfun. And the level 3 phoenix and the level 3 antelope run off the end of the board most of the time. Yeah, we have a way to... We typically play, like, if it runs off, we could still do the hunts, and if something starts the showdown, then we'll let that happen. So we play slightly different, but yeah, it kind of sucks when the uh, runs off the board. Yeah, it does. It does. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing how they do change and tweak things in respect to that. And I really hope that the, um, I think herb gathering is kind of in a good place, um, but I think mineral gathering could do with a bit more work on it. And overwhelming darkness is garbage, which I believe you guys agree. Yeah, not a huge fan of it. All right, so what topic do we want to hit next? I'd have to get back to the agenda to have a look. I can't remember what we have left to look at now. We got uh, the innovations, and then we're going we're gonna to briefly talk about a couple of fighting arts and a couple of disorders. All right, yeah. Um, it's getting a bit late for me, but uh, I think it, let's go on to innovations. Innovations are cool. All right, so we'll kind of go through these briefly. We'll, we'll just kind of give our pros and cons. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, before we do start, um, what we, I think it's worth talking about the innovation deck strategy. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are like fully versed up on this, if I've talked to you about it yet or not, but effectively the innovation deck is a deck gra- drafting game. 
Yeah, you've mentioned it before about not adding things just because it adds more cards to the deck so you get the stuff you want sooner. Sooner. Yeah, yeah. So for those of you who aren't aware, um, there are games such as Dominion where you play the whole game gradually adding cards to a deck and building it up. Um, and one of the strategies within deck drafting games is what's called deck thinning. This was typified by a card called the Chapel, which allowed you to remove cards from your deck. And essentially, when you played Dominion, everybody had to get chapels because a thinner deck means you get to your good stuff more often. So the innovation deck is actually like that. It's a deck drafting system because whenever you pick a card from the innovation deck, it's going to add more cards into it. So quite interestingly, in my opinion, um, the whole decisions you have to make about innovations is not just how good is this innovation here, but it's what innovations is it going to add to the deck? How many is it going to add? So we've our plays kind of evolved to a point now where sometimes we are looking to avoid taking certain um, innovations in order to not put too many extra cards in the deck. Like I think Inner Lantern can add quite a few if you're playing with a lot of expansions and we skipped out on it. Um, For example, when playing People of the Stars, you're very much looking to get Bloodline and Empire as much as you can. You try and strim the deck down and get it as thin as possible. Uh, In the core game, you might be looking to take advantage of the White Speaker event to get a hold of um, the various different songs that are in that and um, again you would then look to try and avoid adding too much bloat so not only are you sort of deciding how good is this card for my settlement right now but you're thinking what does it do to the deck does it add more cards to the deck than it takes out does it shrink the size of the deck improving the quality of my future resource um, draws uh, innovation draws even and I find that to be really elegant it's a superb part of the game it is immense fun and i like that it turns out to be very deep and you can think about it on a number of levels and we've reached the point now where we put out our innovations that we get that are our choices and we lay lay up next to them the cards that are going to come along um behind so we'll have like say you know um paint and then with it will be face painting and pictographs and there's one more sculpture I think it is. So there'll be those three in a pile along next to paint. And then we'll do the same with, say, symposium or whatever else we've drawn and and discuss not only what we're getting immediately and what we're going to do with it, but what is going to be added into the deck and what impact it's going to have on what's left and the chances of us drawing other things we want. So I've got nothing but like thumbs up for this. As much as I ragged on the hunt event previously, the innovation mechanic is superb. It's really good. So anyway, that's kind of the primer, and um, I'll leave you when you play to sort of discover the strategies and things like that, but it is always worth thinking about the tech tree that you're involved with, and there are some very good player aids you can get on BoardGameGeek that lay out the tech tree in full, uh, and you can see in a quick reference what's going to be added for each of extra innovation when you pick one. So um, sorry about that. Thanks for... Um, uh, you know, humor me there, guys. Let's uh, get on with looking at the innovations. All right. So, what does every place start with? It starts with language. So, so. that's your freebie you get in the beginning when someone speaks the first words. Uh, plus one survival limit, and then it gives you the encourage ability. So you get the encourage ability off the bat. And uh, so, what is encourage? Encourage is if someone's knocked down, you can spend a survival to get them back up again because you're never going to keep them down. 
Mm-hmm. So you're going to call their name? Yes. Uh, where are you going? Uh, with that? I'm trying to think of the song. If if you need me. Oh, call my uh, ah, whatever. Yeah. No. I was, I was sorry. I totally lost it. Yeah. But, and then you add the language consequences to the innovation deck. So. So that's your six starting innovation deck cards. Correct. Found anything to add to language? Uh, not really. I mean, it's a very straightforward thing. It's a nice uh, bit of flavor, character, and it's a good starting point. Um, and it's kind of fun, you know, the, these characters who they didn't have any language or anything like that, and then they pick it up and they can start talking to each other. So, yeah, I'm. Uh, it's nice and simple. It's a good, good beginning point, and it's very easy for new players to get a grasp on, which is one of the things Kingdom Death does so incredibly well. All right, so we have a language. So let's look at one of the uh, first cards language gives you, which is Ammonia. So Ammonia is giving you plus one survival for departing, and that's nice. You add the Ammonia Consequences, so it bloats up the Innovation deck, uh, as Fen was saying. But the interesting thing about Ammonia is it's one that you can get as a freebie pretty easily. Uh, That's one of the White Lion Hunt events, is he pees, and you can pick up Ammonia. Uh, consequently, if you're playing with the expansions, the Gorm is another one that can give you ammonia for free. Yeah. So if this is a choice to innovate, that's generally one we skip over because we feel we can get it for free pretty easily. But you need ammonia to make uh, leather. leather. Yes. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Anything else from you, Fan? Uh, I'm the opposite. Uh, I will rush this in any game I'm playing unless I have the Gorm present. Because I don't want to wait for the lion event, because I think you need to have three plus understanding. And I find the faster you get ammonia online, the sooner you can get leather shields. And in People of the Lantern, that makes it easier to handle so many things. It, I think, in particular, you have to have ammonia in line before the Kingsman turns up in Lantern Year 9. So um, I will take this earlier than most. Plus, the extra uh, um, survival when departing is very beneficial. Yeah, so Ammonia only adds one card in the base game, which is Bloodletting. So Bloodletting is, uh, you get to roll a d10 and spend a resource. On a 1 to 3, gain one understanding, but lose all survival. You cannot gain survival to settlement phase for any reason. Uh, 4 through 7, Syncope, uh, gain plus 3 insanity. And then 8 plus Secured, gain plus 6 insanity. And then if you want, you can remove one disorder of your choice. Or a warped pelvis, severe waist injury, or an intestinal prolapse, severe waist injury. So this is nice to remove disorders. <clears throat> yes, yeah, this is a good way to get rid of disorders, especially given the fact that if you uh, pick up Accept Darkness, your only way of dying from brain trauma is if you have three disorders and you roll a ten. Yeah. Um, no, I don't know if we really talked about Endeavors at all. Like how you get those. So those are when you return from a hunt, every return survivor brings back an endeavor. Uh, there's some principles that change that. So Graves gives you plus, plus two if someone died during it, or plus one if they died during the settlement event. And there's some other ways to give you plus endeavors, but it's basically a resource you get when you return to spend it doing activities. It's like a settlement action. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, Fen, do you have anything on bloodletting? Uh, well, I think, um, on the whole, first of all, removing the disorder you said is very useful, even with the massive insanity gain. But in addition, this actually provides protection against plague, which is something you should not underestimate. And it's uh, what we call a dead end um, 
innovation as in i don't think it adds anything more to the deck there's nothing that follows on from bloodletting at the moment so i like this quite a bit um and i think it's 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 a good one um it's just a shame that really eight plus is the only thing you're looking for you know um so yeah i I often take this and i take it early just because i don't want to deal with plague all right so next up we have is drums so this is the old card. There's actually a change for 1.5. So we're going to read the original right now and compare the differences. Uh, so drums spend an endeavor and roll a d10. <clears throat> Bone beats on a 1 through 4 lone drummer gain plus 1 insanity. Uh, on a 5 through 8 rhythmic trance gain plus 1 survival. And on a 9 plus remove 1 disorder from any survivor. And departing survivors gain plus one survival. So, again, it's another way that you can get rid of a uh, disorder. Uh, doesn't have quite the drawbacks as before, and then it adds the drums consequences to the innovation deck. The 1.5 updates change that around, um, so you spend an endeavor and roll, and you don't roll a d10, you just pick one of the following. So you either drum alone and gain two insanity, you either go into a rhythm- rhythmic trance and gain two survival, or you gain Rhythm Chaser Fighting Art or the Synchronized Attack Secret Fighting Art. Which are new things in 1.5. Correct. So it's... They're both different. I like the new drums. kind of gives you more strategy, but it removes the disorder removing, which is... kind of bad. Fan, your thoughts? Well, um, obviously you've mentioned... A bit earlier, I do like to use drums for trying to remove disorders rather than using bloodletting because it's a lower cost. You can just toss extra endeavors in. So I'm a bit sad about the changes that are happening um, in regards to this. Ultimately, I think in the core game alone, drums is a very low priority pick. Um, it becomes more important with some of the expansions added in. Um, so it's, yeah, you know, like. This is kind of something I get around the mid to late game in the pure core game only, just to start uh, managing and mitigating, um, except... All right, and then from drums, we can get four... Oh, were you done, Ben? Sorry, I was just saying, it's difficult because I keep thinking about the Gorm. This is how I judge drums, and it's very different when the Gorm's in play. So um, I was trying to think back to before I played... when I, I Before I started slamming the Gorm into every single time I played. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, uh, you know, I can see why they changed it. I'm just a little sad about it. All right, so next up we have Forbidden Dance, which has also got a change of 1.5. So the standard core game one is Spend an Endeavor and Fever Dance. You roll a d10. On a one, Clumsy Shuffle, minus one permanent movement. That's pretty nasty. Uh, two through nine, Give Up, Gain, plus one Insanity. And on a ten plus, Forbidden Step, Spend seven Resources and Gain, plus one Permanent Evasion. And then it adds the Forbidden Dance consequences. But seven resources is a lot. Um, It's a lot different in the 1.5 update. Yes. 1.5 is, it's a once per lifetime roll of a d10. So each survivor will only get to do this once in a lifetime. On a 1 through 5, Ruined suffer minus one permanent movement. So it's pretty risky because you have a pretty decent shot of losing a movement. On a 6 through 9... Perfect. Gain plus one permanent evasion. That's your nice part there. Plus yeah. one permanent evasion is huge for no seven resources, you know? Yeah. Um, and then on a ten plus, you gain the King Step Secret Fighting Art, where 
I mean, I think I prefer the six through nine. No. Yeah, I don't remember exactly King Step. Fan, if you could uh, maybe remind us, King Step, which one that was. Ooh, I really can't remember off the top of my head either. That um, obviously it comes to the Kingsman, but I haven't fought the Kingsman for six months or something like that. I, uh, I, I remember it now. Test games, yeah. It's the uh, they get rid of the battle pressure cards and then you could redraw a hit location. Yeah, yeah. That so it's okay. It's not. It's not a great secret fighting art. Wait, that's the update for Forbidden Dance. So yeah. Yeah, you get the King's Step secret fighting art. That's the uh, update. Did, did Forbidden Dance really need nerfing? It's just funny because that's on a 10 plus. Uh, the 6 or 9 is gain one permanent evasion with no loss of cost. resources. Yeah. So it's. Okay, I guess overall it's a win. Yeah. I don't. I don't have too much to say. Um, Forbidden Dance isn't something I draw out of the deck very often. Um, but I guess with the updates, I will probably pick it a bit more higher on the priority list now. I do like the artwork, though; it's cool. All right, and then from from Forbidden Dance, we get Heart Flute, which I know Fen likes, and that is yet another one with an update. Yeah, the, the, oh, they changed all the uh, music stuff because it was a little weak, weird, yeah, and people weren't using it. So the hard flute is spend an endeavor, and it's used. This is only once per settlement phase. So an endeavor gives you the devil's me- melody. So roll a d10 on a one sharp note. The survivor drops dead. On a two through five flat note, add a nemesis encounter to the next timeline year. On a six plus, select any nemesis monster. Special encounter them now. You may choose their monster level. After the showdown, resume the settlement phase. Do not gain endeavors. Draw a settlement event card or advance lantern year. This was ridiculous, really. And the new one... Is even more ridiculous. Yes. So what's the new one say? So the new one is a 1 through 2. Sharp note, the survivor's dead. So it doubled the death instant death range, uh, but it got rid of just adding a nemesis encounter because it's on a 3+, plus that allows you to select any nemesis monster and add a special encounter with them at any level to this year's timeline. Uh, depart for the encounter after the develop step, then return to the develop step. So, again, it's the same thing. You don't draw settlement cards. You don't gain endeavors. You don't advance the lantern gear. But on a 3+, plus, you get to have a nemesis encounter with any level nemesis you want, which means that you can be super late game and do some level 1 hand fights or level 1 butcher, butcher fights. And uh, farm silly things. Yeah. So, Fen, you want to talk about this one a little bit? Well, the original Heart Flute was woefully underused by people because they just didn't realize how far you know people weren't paying attention to this part of the tech tree um there was a few select people um myself included who kind of noted and went well if you can handle the level three or higher versions of the various monsters um the heart flute's not really a big problem um and if you get to do the special encounters then you slam out the butcher the level like two butcher over and over and farm him and you get tons of scrap which you can melt down to get iron or you can get the forsaker mask and then get the mask maker location and get it back you can get your hands on his cleavers etc etc or you could do the same just beating up the level one hand um well i should say weathering the level one hand for the better rewards just surviving what he, he plans to throw at you um i don't understand what they're doing with the change version the change version is so ridiculous that 
I mean, I can't see how it can get through testing and get to the table the way it is because it is just utterly degenerate. I mean, it's going to reach a point where there's there's obviously there's this group of people who are already like I don't heart um, I don't cat's eye circlet uh, I don't rawhide headband because you know that makes the game too easy etc. Um, and they won't be doing this either. This is the first time I'm getting close to being like holy shit like this is ridiculous i mean you know i i i'm having like properly mapped out how you're going to abuse this most of all um does the updated version oh it's once per settlement phase it's still once per settlement phase on the updated version isn't it yeah it still still says once per settlement phase so that that didn't change that's fine but that does mean like once you have a heart flute rolling you've got a bunch of disposable guys in the settlement who can just blow the flute and if they die fine whatever but potentially you could be having two fights every single year one of which is just a cakewalk that that drops out resources and gives you advances on experience and um and you know weapon proficiencies and in all honesty i think they need to go back to the drawing board on what they're doing with heart flute um which is probably too late by now it may well be at the printers and we'll have to see what's coming out but i i yeah, this this is unbelievably broken. Um, even as it stands in one point three one, it is ridiculously powerful. So enjoy your heart fleet, seriously, guys. Get them built, explore them, and have fun farming nemesis monsters, which is crazy. But you know, it's yeah. This is one of the most powerful. Um, and it, I thought the risk balance reward thing was correct as it stood right now, but uh, we just have to see. Yeah. Yeah, so that's Heart Flute. So next up we have, this is another drum co- consequence. So this is, so drums adds two cards to the deck, Forbidden Dance and Song of the Brave, which yeah. also has a 1.5 update. Yeah, solid music one. So Song of the Brave is the survivors celebrate life by lifting their voices into the darkness. All non-deaf survivors add plus one to their roll results in overwhelming darkness. That's really nice, just because unless you're insane, that gets rid of the spend all your survival or you die. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, just plus one's always good in this game for the most part. And that adds the Song of the Brave consequences. So the 1.5 update is the survivors lift their voices to the darkness. At the start of the showdown, all non-deaf survivors may remove one negative attribute token. All non-deaf survivors may always select Path of the Brave during Overwhelming Darkness. So it gets rid of the plus one to all roll results, but it allows everyone to roll on the Path of the Brave. And if you get one of those minus tokens during it, you can actually have just remove it at the beginning of the showdown. Yeah, so, so it's, it's not, not bad at all. It, it, it makes overwhelming darkness less crappy. Yeah, I wish that it still added the plus one just so it got rid of that. Uh, you die. spend all your survival or you die, but I guess that would have nerfed overwhelming darkness almost completely. Then yeah, Ben, what are what are your thoughts on uh, Song of the Brave? Um, I quite like the way it works right now. I was happy with um, being able to cancel the roll a one and you die results. Um, I feel like the change is kind of a nerf in some ways to the card, but also a benefit in that I've been getting the impression they're trying to make it easier for us to take out insane survivors and punish insane survivors less, give us tools to mitigate that. Um, um, so it's uh, it's interesting. Um, Song of the Brave isn't something I prioritize hunting after, particularly early on in the core game. Um, you know, you don't need it 
at all until you're regularly hunting level two pluses. So yeah. And then, so that adds one card to the game, Saga, which actually didn't get a change. It's it stayed the same. And Saga is a telling of the settlement's survival set to a soft, rhythmic beating of drums. All newborn survivors gain plus two hunt experience and plus two survival from knowing the epic. So all your newborn children can go out and immediately declare weapon proficiencies. They get their plus age for the first time around right off the bat. And uh, an additional two survival to start out with. So. I've always, I've always actually liked Saga. I always thought it was a good one just to give a boost to new survivors, especially if you're playing a settlement that, for some reason, can't keep survivors alive that long. Yeah, it allows you to keep the weapon proficiencies rolling. I really like that you don't have to worry about the first two years almost being null in terms of getting weapon proficiencies uh, for the sur- for newborn survivors. So I, I rather enjoy this card. And, of course, it adds no additional cards to the tech tree. Ben, what are your thoughts on uh, Saga? It's just really solid. It's the best part of the um, of the music tree outside of, you know, the Broken Heart Flute. It's really good, and it is absolutely the reason that you go after Song of the Brave at the moment. I think it's good, um, and certainly something worth rushing for, because if you got this early on, then that's quite a nice boost. As you said, you can start um, getting onto a variety of different weapon proficiencies earlier on and get everyone out a little bit more experienced and more powerful. So, yeah, you know, I like it. All right, so then we're going to go back up to uh, language, and the next major innovation you get is Hovel. So Hovel gives you the plus one survival limit, so that's always nice getting additional max survival. Uh, the settlement accepts the nightmarish landscape as their home. Departing survivors gain plus one survival. But also, as well, this adds the Hubble consequences to the innovation deck. And it gives you the ability to get... Saviors. Savior. Savior babies. So without this card, ten is just twins. But with this, you get some savior babies. Fen, anything else to add with Hubble? Um, I'm... Hubble is the lowest priority tier you know like first tier of the tech tree for me um i find hovel adds a lot of stuff to the deck that is not that interesting or useful early on and actually um this takes away the ability to roll twins so within people of the lantern i take hovel as late as i possibly can um although the plus one survival limit and the plus one departing survivors are strong and useful so I'm not heartbroken if it's a choice and there are um, less interesting things elsewhere. All right. And then the first thing we get under Hovel is Bed. So Bed is another plus one survival limit, and it gives you the ability to spend an endeavor and rest. So roll a d10 on a one through three, you get nightmares and gain plus one insanity. But on a four plus, you can endeavor and you have to skip the next hunt. Uh, but you heal all broken arm injuries, all broken hip injuries, all broken rib injuries, and all ruptured muscle severe injuries. Heal one of those, of the four. Heal one, heal one of them, correct. Yes, but if you have bro- multiple broken arms, you heal them all. And- multiple broken ribs, so that's, that's a nice one. Um, it could have some nice benefits. It doesn't add anything else to the tech tree. And beds also gives you the ability to, correct me if I'm wrong, if you roll an eight, that allows you to have a baby with an additional plus one strength. It's a part of the row as well. I don't know the exact numbers. Uh, but yeah, so it's if you roll a 7 or 8, you get a plus 1 additional permanent strength when you have a newborn baby there. Which is, which is okay. Strength is nice, but 
I mean, not required. Coming out of the room, the womb with it is nice. Yeah. Would you? Would this just be something you picked up, like top priority, or no? No, I really don't care all that much about it. The plus one survival limit is nice. Don't get me wrong, but especially if you're avoiding hovel till later in the game, then this is really not going to show up for a while. Yeah, Ben, anything more from you? If I remember correctly, I don't care if I get broken hips. I, I can't remember if broken hip is the one I'm thinking of or not, but uh, it's low priority. Um, just kind of like, yeah, you know, like sometimes you pick it up just because uh, the other options are worse. It's got the mid tier, mid, you know, mid power level kind of card. It's okay. Uh, so, Fen, just to clarify, broken hip is minus one permanent movement. Right, uh, yeah, then. I don't want that. I was thinking of the one that's minus one permanent speed. That's the ribs. All right, okay, so it was on there. Um, yeah, well, I can see prioritizing the bed a bit higher if you've got quite a few people with broken arms and broken hips or ruptured mus- muscles. But I don't know about you guys. I don't seem to get these very often. People seem to either get knocked down, blinded, or drop dead when I play. That, that's that's pretty much the standard in Kingdom of Death, I think. Yeah, I think I suffer blinded a lot more than I get broken hips in this game. So. Or a broken back. Yeah, broken back, disemboweled happens a lot. So I really don't see these happening all that much. Um, you have the ribs from the the Nemesis fight. Oh, uh, yeah. God, which one was it? Uh, the hand. The hand, but he heals you at the end of it. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, yeah, and that, that's the other thing. Like If you have the heart flute, you go get to the hand and just get all these broken bones healed. So next up is uh, Family. So Family is Departing Survivors Gain Plus One Survival. Uh, survivors nominated for Intimacy may give themselves a surname if they don't have one. Newborn Survivor inherits the surname of their parent, their weapon type, and half rounded down of their weapon proficiency. Add family to the add the family consequences to the innovation deck. So getting the weapon proficiency is nice, assuming you have some characters with some high weapon proficiency levels. Because it gives you an insurance policy, and it also it allows you to get a secondary master and an ability, possibly. Yeah, uh, this but this also is more late game when you start getting higher weapon proficiency. Because it really doesn't matter, like, oh, I gave them one level of weapon proficiency. Ooh. Like, it, that isn't too much of a big deal. Then any more on family? I slightly disagree. I think early game, it is a bit more impactful because... Uh, if you say have four weapon proficiency and you die, um, dropping back down to two is is only a drop of two, but dropping from like seven down to what is it four or three? In fact, is is a lot larger. So this is one of those things that can mitigate the issues of getting your weapon proficiencies done because you can sort of create a a, a a soft backup of your key survivors, like your fist and tooth survivor and your um, shield one. But it is stuck in a hovel tree, so I kind of don't want to go hunting after it too early on. So it's kind of pluses and minuses, you know. It does have a very good follow-up innovation. Yes, the follow-up innovation is Clan of Death. This is awesome, just to put it that way. Uh, so Clan of Death, it is a end of the, the Route 1. There's no additional consequences from it. But the enduring strength of your clan passes through the generations. Every newborn... Gains plus one accuracy, plus one strength, plus one evasion. So it ignores the speed. Uh, it, it's just nice. And it gives you plus accuracy. I love plus accuracy. That's uh, My favorite is the plus evasion. Well, yeah. you. I mean, it's just our play styles, really. I'm usually hiding out in the background with the bow, so I'm going to favor the accuracy. And you're up front with the, the, the board and the armor, so you're going to favor the evasion. But 
You get both of them. You don't get to choose. Well, you get everything. Yeah. That had any negatives? Negatives of Clan of Death from you? Absolutely not. It's phenomenal. It's amazing. It's the pinnacle of the home tech tree. All right, and then we get to the last one, which is like the worst of the tech tree. I think. Yeah, I, this is partnership is my least favorite one here by a mile and a half. I think. Uh, that is, you spend two endeavors for some reason, and you nominate two survivors to partner up with each other. Uh, when you both depart together, you get plus two survival, which is, I guess, nice. When you're adjacent to your partner, you gain plus one strength. You have to be adjacent to them, yeah. which is, like, really cumbersome. And they can only be nominated for intimacy with each other, which, okay, whatever. But then when one of them dies, the other one gains a random ability, a random disorder and then loses this ability. So it's such, like, in a game that favors don't hang on to one survivor too long because it's probably going to die. This is, you're putting your stock into two survivors going out together continuously on multiple hunts and, and all you get a minimal gain because you're going to get plus two survival which I mean it, and it's if you, not bad if but you build not... your gear and your tech trees and everything right you should be getting close to maxing it out every time unless you spend it all willy nilly and then plus one strength and only when you're adjacent to each other is really just bleh yeah it's it, I wish this did more Fan. Um, yeah, it's there is actually flavorful wise. I, I think this is actually pretty well done, um, and even down to the two endeavors, it's hot. it makes sense again. It's what each each of them spend an endeavor. Um, the thing is, is this is not the kind of thing you want to be spending in an innovation to get out of the deck. Sometimes you get it for free um, via rivalry. I think it is you potentially can. Um, this is also a very heavy part of People of the Sun. It's more, it's more impactful and more important in that setting where they've managed to make partnership interesting and usable. So definitely from a People of the Lantern viewpoint, it is like meh. And I think People of the Stars don't even bother with partnership whatsoever. So um, yeah, it's uh, in a core game. This is like low, low, low priority. Um, even though thematically it's very cool. All right, so that's the end of the Hubble card. So next we're going to go to Inner Lantern. This is eh, might be my favorite one. I I'm, I play aggressively, so the Inner Lantern gives you the Surge ability. So Surge is you can spend a survival to get another activation and use it immediately. So you can attack again, and that's just awesome. But more importantly, you can use it as an interrupt. So, for example, when the monster has one AI card left and he goes to draw it, you can surge and beat the crap out of him and kill him before he has a chance to actually do anything. Yep. So, and then just the ability to, if you if you happen to have a really bad round and you roll poorly and you miss all of your attack, you be like, fine, I'll spend a survival and I'll try that again. So it's not like you're sitting around and just waiting for another opportunity to attack next round. Uh, it is worth noting that this does add the Inner Lantern consequences to the Innovation deck. Yep. Ben, you have anything more on Inner Lantern? Well, this is one of the biggest game-changing um, events 
that you can get, along with uh, paint, of course, that we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, it's huge. It's very hard to pass up taking this early on, getting the ability to attack and circlet, or attack and rawhide, or, as I often do, activate f- weapons four times in a single round um, per survivor is is just huge. It's a, It's a game changer. And the other thing I'd like to sort of note is how clever the design of complexity for kingdom death is because this is a layer of complexity that they've they've locked away in an innovation and so you get used to like move and attack that's what i do if i don't attack then i move and i activate an item that might do something like bandages or a cat's eye circlet and then you get in the lantern out and you go whoa hang on a minute i can spend a survival and now i can do do two of them or do the same one twice so it's, this is why Kingdom Death is amongst one of the best teaching curve games there is. Because you can you go from a very simple like prologue fight that is incredibly well designed, and very gradually things ramp up. And and if somebody walks into like a high level game of Kingdom Death, they could be forgiven for thinking this game's ridiculously complex. How on earth did you learn to play this? Because and in truth, it's like well, because the game handed the mechanics to us a little bit at a time and we unlocked things and and so on and inner lantern is one of those keys to the higher level strategies and and i love it i i think it's brilliant and i am a little bit sad that the one i'm uh, campaign i'm playing with albrack right now we don't have inner lantern available in it um as one of the innovations so you know it, it's one of my favorites all right so inner lantern adds two cards one of them is scarification so Scarification is a rather interesting one. Um, this is you spend an endeavor to get your initiation. So once in a lifetime, you get plus one courage and roll on the table. So you're actually rolling a hit location die. So uh, if you roll ahead, you get blinded. If you roll the body, you get tough fighting art. So what is tough again, Josh? Uh, I think it's like plus one to spirit injury rolls. Yeah. Uh, if you roll the waist, you get the destroyed genital severe injury result. If you roll the hand, you get the gambler's scar and get plus one permanent luck. And then if you roll the feet, you roll a d10. On a six plus, you lose some toes, suffer minus one permanent movement. So this is really a toss-up because uh, it is worth noting that the body is on the hit location die twice. But it gives you tough, so that's... Oh, I'm just saying. So you have three options that give you... Positive and three options that give you negative. But one of the negative ones are 50-50. Correct. So it's a little bit more of a net positive gain. Um, and you do have a one in six chance of getting plus one permanent luck, which is really nice. Yeah. So we never really used scarification. Ben, do you use it? Not at all. I don't think I've ever innovated this. I took one look and went, well, 50% chance of getting something good. And then, like, I, I, I think the... Um, Destroyed genital severe injury isn't quite so bad, but losing the movement and the blinded severe head injury, meh. So it is. It is only one minus one permanent movement, and it's a 50-50 shot, so that doesn't really bother me. And as you said, the destroyed genitals isn't horrible. I can't believe I just said that. Uh, <laughs> but the blinded severe injury really sucks because I just I really hate getting negative accuracy. It really 
bothers me. So that's the main reason why I avoid scarification. But it's like the more I look at it, the less meh I am on it, and the more like yeah, I, I could give it a shot if we haven't innovated. But this certainly wouldn't be a priority to innovate. Uh, and also, it doesn't add any additional cards to the deck. Interesting thing would be taking some blebs and throwing it in there and trying to get Gambler Scar. Right. And, and just try to get a plus one luck. And if you got. Alright, that's cool. So next up we have Shrine. So Shrine's a cool one. Uh, Shrine is maybe used once per settlement phase and you roll. Uh, sorry, you roll a d10, but you spend an endeavor to do so. And that is on a 1 through 3, departing survivors gain plus 1 insanity. Meh. Uh, on a 4-plus, Departing Survivors gain plus 1 armor to all hit locations. And especially early in the game, this is, you know, really big if you happen to get it pretty early on. But plus 1 armor at any point in the game is nice. And it costs, like, an Endeavor. Is that... Uh, we, we tend to have extra Endeavors that, that we just throw out making babies or something. Yeah, exactly. And it's a, what, a 70% chance that you're going to get it? So... Yeah. So... It's always good to, you know, have some armor. But it does beef up the Consequence deck by adding the Shrine stuff. Which is one card. So, Fen, anything with Shrine? Um, I find this is just something we will chuck a spare Endeavor at. As you said, it's more important in the early game than the late game. This is because when you get to the late game you start fighting the big monsters, it becomes about blocks and evasion and dodges rather than armor points, and you just use your armor points to soak reactions when you're attacking. So uh, this one is it's never bad to have um, a shrine, really. It, it does help a great deal. So it's uh, it thumbs up for me. There's no real drawback. Even if you roll badly, you still get a minor benefit. All right, so uh, next up and the last one is Scarification. That's Sacrifice. Or, sorry, Sacrifice. I can't read today. It's okay. We already did Scarification. But Sacrifice is you spend an Endeavor and you do the Death Ritual. So you roll a d10. On a 1, Pointless Deaths, minus 2 population. 2 to 3, Screamer, minus 1 population, and Departing Survivors gain plus 3 insanity. 4 to 5, Inhuman, minus 1 population, and Departing, departing Survivors lose all insanity. And then on a 6+, plus, so a 50-50 shot of this happening, uh, move the Nemesis Encounter Watcher one year back on the timeline, maybe gained once per settlement phase. You still get the minus one population. And you still get the minus one population. So you're killing someone for a 50-50 shot of moving the Watcher further back. Which Or two people. Why? Uh, on a one. No, I mean, why yeah. would you do this? No. I, yeah, this is pointless, in my opinion. Fen? Well, um, yes... Like mechanically, this is kind of pointless, but thematically, you, this is one way you can win the game. And effectively, with the combination of, um, I think it's collective toil and graves and sacrifice, you just can generate a gigantic population, endlessly recycle people into sacrifice over and over, because um, you'll get endeavors back when they die, and you can make more babies and chuck the babies in there. And then you're just looking to trigger the once per settlement phase, you push back the Watcher, and effectively you can extend your settlement's life forever, almost indefinitely, shoving the Watcher back and back and back and back. And uh, at that point, you can basically proclaim your settlement to be a town rather than um, a little you know, shack in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of ignorant uh, savages sitting around. So, um, yeah, in the mechanics of the game, it's interesting. It is interesting that Sacrifice... Um, drives the watcher back um and that's a bit of a look at maybe some information about the watcher that kind of needs to be considered with what it is uh but uh you know on the whole it's um 
it's more fun for flavour and another alternate win condition in my opinion. So, you know, I w- I'm interested to see what happens in respect of the gold smoke knight because he's supposed to turn up at Lantern Year Thirty. So I don't know what sacrifice would do with that, and whether you'd end up with a situation where the Watcher still hasn't turned up, but you've got to fight the gold smoke knight. Who knows? Just watch the Watcher and the Gold Smoke Knight go at it. <laughs> Alright, um, I actually skipped this. This is actually Ammonia Consequence, uh, Lantern Oven. So Lantern Oven gives uh, heat. By agitating lanterns, a source of heat becomes available to the settlement. So we get heat. And departing survivors gain plus one survival, add the Lantern Oven, oven Consequences. So heat gives you, opens up what again? The Blacksmith, I believe? Heat lets you... It starts getting into the Blacksmith, yes. Um, it, it's what lets you... Some things require heat to make. Okay. Kind of like ammonia is needed for... Leather. Leather. Um, so you get that, and then you can get this actually early on through Hands of Heat. So it's not something I normally pick out of the deck, since... You can get it for free. You get it for free at, like, year f- five? Right, Ben? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, there's no reason to really innovate Lantern Oven out of the deck, unless it gets destroyed. Then from Lantern Oven, you get two things. You get cooking. Uh, plus one survival limit. If you spend an Endeavor, you roll a d10. One to two, nothing happens. And on a three plus, you do cooking. And I don't think we've ever done cooking. So no. I really can't speak to it. Um, cooking is you get to... If I you correct me wrong, you get to use vermin resources and some screaming antelope resources to make a dish that gives you plus the stats. Yeah, it generally uses not always Screaming Antelope resources, but all of the cooking recipes use bits from two of the monsters in the core game, plus vermin resources. And they do, they give you stat bonuses. This is a bit of an underutilized part of the game that is fun, but um, doesn't get very good without uh, the addition of the Sunstalker expansion. And also, even then, it's not great. Ultimately, I think the Gambler's Chest, which is supposed to beef up cooking a bit um, with the Anna um, survivor model, uh, having some extra material, is where we're going to have something interesting going on. Cooking, I think, just... It feels like an afterthought, like they didn't properly pad it out and and build it correctly. Um, But it could be very good fun in the future as an alternate thing to spend resources on. For anyone who's played People of the Skull and eaten the skulls, they'll be able to tell you that gaining stats permanently on survivors via devouring bits and resources is actually quite powerful in the mid to late part of the campaign. So it's got potential cooking, but it's not something I would rush to sort out right now unless you are like, I'm going to play cooking, in which case you're going to want to keep the antelope in. I would recommend adding Spidiculus in as well and add the Sunstalker. You're not going to be doing this in the core game to that. Alright, and the other innovation it adds is scrap smelt in, which basically you roll die, it lets you make iron, turn your scrap into iron, and then you can actually use the innovation to make the blacksmith. blacksmith. So that's how you actually get to the blacksmith, it's your scrap smelt in. So it's more of a utility kind of thing. Uh, once you get more to late game, because typically you don't have a lot of iron or scrap. Anything to add, Fen? Uh, not really. This is um, this has the whole chain of obviously it allows you to build the blacksmith. 
um, and it has the chain off the weaponsmith. They've used the weaponsmith to gather the scrap, and then you turn all that scrap into iron. Uh, and you generally have to do this to make up for how hard it is to get iron in the core game. So it's kind of an important innovation, but it's a fiddly one, and it's not something you're looking for early on. All right. So uh, next up, uh, the next main innovation we have is paint. This is another big one because this is the one that gives you dash. And dash allows you to spend a survival to get one extra movement action and use it immediately. And this is huge because you can use it to dash out of the monster's range. You can use it to dash closer to the monster. So, for example, if you're fighting a level 2 white lion and he's not just going to keep picking on someone and running away from all of you every turn if he's got cunning in play uh, because he moves more than you do. So this allows you to catch up to monsters. It allows you to run away from monsters at opportune times. This is a big one. This is, if not Surge, then this for sure. I prefer paint over, over. I prefer sur- dash over search. Yeah, personally, fan. Yeah, I have to agree. Um, dash is the prerequisite for tackling a lot of the level two monsters. I don't think I want to face the level two white lion without dash. Um, you can get away with facing the level two antelope without it, but then there's the scare of the level three lion turning up, as we talked about in the antelope episode. Also, I don't want to go anywhere near the phoenix without dash because the phoenix is every turn move of where razor wings you can really only be razor winds you can only really be dealt with by dashing out of the way during the flow step so dash is important and you need it um to move into the middle mid part of the game all right so after that um this is where some 1.5 changes came in is for uh, all the uh, art consequences too so next up we have face painting which does have a 1.5 change so the original one is Battle Paint is an endeavor. So roll d10, 1 through 3, Laughing Stock, loses survival. 4 plus, Death Ceremony, gain 3 insanity. And then for another endeavor, there's Founder's Eye, which is a d10. 1 through 3, an accidental mess, nothing happens. And on a 4 plus, gain plus 1 to any results on the Intimacy Story event, the settlement phase. So the updates with 1.5 are just to Battle Paint. So on a 1 through 3, uh, Laughing Stock, nothing happens. So you don't lose the survival. And then on a 4 plus, Death Paint uh, Ceremony, departing survivors gain plus 2 survival and plus 1 insanity. So you're going to get more in survival than insanity. Uh, the really nice thing about face paint, excuse me, face painting is the Founder's Eye on a 4 plus roll, gaining plus 1 to any rolls on the Intimacy Story event. This is what's going to allow you to make babies in Survival of the Fittest. Yeah. Because otherwise, you roll 2 d10, you pick the lowest one, you're probably going to kill a lot of parents. Yeah. So you save baby making until you get face painting. Um, I do like the changes to battle paint as it's the part in Survivor. It's just not the one survivor who is... Yeah, so it affects more people. It's more worth it. Yeah. Ben, your thoughts on face paint? You pretty much covered it. They um, In the update, they fixed the part of face painting that was meaningless which is the battle paint and founder's eye is absolutely um, key for survival fittest so yeah I don't have anything further to add alright next up is pictograph um, this is gives you the runaway event basically that's all it does it also has a lot of interactions with the hunt events as we saw before so yes. it allows more options for various hunt events yes. so that's one thing to consider as well and it does add the pictograph consequences I we really don't run away so Runaway is just a horrible story event, and it, it 
that needs to be tweaked in itself, and I, I think 1.5 is probably going to have a rework for Runaway because as it is, it's it doesn't seem right. Right. Because you can kind of run away at any time. Like, the monster's attacking me, I'm going to try to run away now. And it it's fine. It's not like on your survivor's turn, you have to spend an action to do it. Ben? Well, they did faku it to say you cannot run away except at the start of the survivor's turn. So they, they dealt with that. But the whole runaway table is basically the Warhammer Quest runaway table. So um, I think Pictograph is ripe for some fixing and repairing. Um, and mostly the benefits are the hidden things that you don't realize, which is all the stuff in the in the hunt events that actually require pictograph to get access to interesting things. So, yeah, it's um, a sleeper, this one, but also one that needs a lot more work. There is also an advanced level um, strategy build that we will talk about in the future that involves pictographs, um, but it's as cheesy as fuck, and I do not recommend it for your um, general play. Because it ruins the game. All right. Next up is Momentum Mori. So Momentum Mori may only be used once per settlement phase, and that's spending an endeavor, nominate a survivor that died the last showdown, and roll a d10. So on a one, nothing happens. Two to three, gain the insanity of the dead survivor. Four to eight, painful memories, gain the courage and the understanding of the dead survivors. So that's pretty nice. And then 9 to 10 profound memories gain the hunt experience of the dead survivor. So if you have a dead survivor that was really friggin' good. I mean, more if they had a lot handy. of courage and understanding. Right, but it, it's it's nice to be able to farm some of those back in from them. But this is a pretty deep in the tech tree thing, isn't it? Yeah. So we've never actually got this. And I believe this does also affect one of the, uh, the monsters, one of the quarries. Now one of the... Uh, I think if you fight a level three butcher, oh, I'm not hundred percent sure. It's a, it's a one of the level three guys. Ben, you, you know off the top of your head? Um, I'm thinking it might be the Kingsman. It's the butcher. It's uh, if it's level three butcher, you roll a d10 on a two plus, you get the first acre mask. Oh, I guess so. But yeah, it's. This is cool for, like, once you have stronger characters to kind of pass on stuff, but uh, we haven't used it, Fen. Have you? I have used it a little bit, but it's, as you say, it's so far up the tech tree that it's quite rare that you get it. And it is kind of, it's not high priority because you're you're mitigating things going horribly wrong. And generally, the trick is to avoid things going wrong rather than deal with it afterwards. So... Um, Momentum Mori is more interesting for the impacts it has in various other parts of the game where it interacts with events and things and unlocks additional stuff. Um, but, you know, it's it's not terrible, uh, especially as it's a end-of-tech-tree um, card that gets removed from the deck and doesn't add anything else in. All right, and next up we have is Sculpture. So Sculpture Which, got a big update in 1.5. A very broken update. A very broken update. So let's talk about the original one first. This is plus one survival limit. Silhouettes of Sculpture cast strange comforting shadows on the outskirts of the settlement. Departing survivors gain plus two survival when they depart for a nemesis encounter. And then you add the uh, Sculpture updates. But the 1.5 update is kind of silly. So you create an inspirational statue, lose a fighting art, and note this on the settlement record sheet. The project is draining, and you cannot depart this year. Depart the next lantern year. Any other survivor 
Uh, starting the next Lantern Year, any other survivor may spend an endeavor here to learn from your work and gain the fighting art you depicted. So you can just take a survivor that has a really nice fighting art and put it on this sculpture, and then for an endeavor, any other survivor in the settlement can learn it. So that's stuff like Abyssal Sadist is one. Abyssal Sadist, Thrill Seeker. Yeah, Thrill Seeker is amazing on there. Um, you can't do secret fighting arts. No, just that. But still, there's some really nice regular fighting arts that you can put on there, and then if you give them to a bunch of people, it kind of breaks the game. Yeah, just a bit. So in our one of our streaming sessions, we had both Abyssal Sadist on there at one point and then Thrill Seeker on there at one point. So we gave... We were attempting to give four survivor, survivors that, but uh, we didn't quite have the time frame to do it. But if we wanted to, we could have. Yeah. And so you're talking about basically survivors with infinite survival. And that's how we pretty much took out the DBK level three. Yeah. Was through the broken sculpture. Fan, anything to add with the, the new sculpture or the old one with that? Well, the old one's garbage. I mean, we can all agree that. It's not something you want um, the new one is unbelievably broken, just ridiculously broken. I think the only thing that could have managed to be more broken is if it also worked with letting you hand out disorders. So, yeah, um, I really hope that they've taken this back to the um, the drawing board and done something else with it for 1.5. Although if they haven't, it's going to be a lot of fun and probably a lot of frowny faces coming from Adam and co. As a... Uh, all sorts of stuff they never intended starts to happen. Well, so I know they, they should have gotten an insight into that because uh, yeah, we, we made it kind of known. We, we made it known, and, and I let uh, Zenith know uh, on the development team that it, it is very, very broken. So I'm sure he... At least hopefully took that into cons- consideration. Yeah. So the last one on the art is Pottery, which does have a 1.5 change. So pottery is plus one survival limit. If the settlement loses all of its resources, you may select up to two resources and keep them. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, thing is, it also for endeavor you get to build the barber surgeon, which is another settlement location. But note, this is also buried deep into the thing to get this location. So, what are the changes to pottery? Uh, so pottery, you now have the ability to spend an endeavor to do fermentation. Spend one organ basic resource and gain a love juice. Limit once per lantern year. So you can farm a, lan- a love juice every lantern year, essentially. Yes. And, and you're not losing a resource. You're just converting an organ to a different type of organ. Right. So it's basically instead of doing augury, I'm going to make a love juice so it's a more guaranteed baby making. So if you have survival fittest, you could be making love juice all those years, and then when you're ready to hit face painting, spam all your love juice. Yeah. And then you can also spend an endeavor, and that's ret. I I don't know if that's correct, but spend one herb resource and gain one hide basic resource. Limit once per lantern year. So if you get a lot of acanthus or something and you don't want it... You can make it into some hide. Make it some hide. Uh, The other note to change is Barber Surgeon is now... Unlocked by having pottery and fighting the screaming antelope mm-hmm. instead of using endeavor and spending resources, which could be a good or bad thing, I guess, if you want to fight the antelope again. Ben, what are your thoughts on pottery? Eh, I mean, the original version's kind of like whatever, the new version, you know, it's, it's an improvement. Uh, I prefer the changes around the screaming antelope because the barber surgeon location's a pain in the ass to try and get. But yeah, um, I don't have too much more to add on this front. All right, so then we get to the last major 
one, which is a symposium. Uh, what symposium? Symposium is plus one survival limit, but this one's huge because when a survivor innovates, draw an additional two innovation cards to choose from. Um, so, yeah, Makes picking the next card easier. Yeah, you don't get you don't run the risk of getting two crap choices. You know, yeah. it helps out. It helps out. So, Fen, out of, out of the basic six innovations, what's the one you pick first? You know the answer. It's right there on the screen. Always Symposium if I get the choice. My order is Symposium, then Ammonia, then Paint, then Inner Lantern. That's the four I take. And that usually covers all the initial six, any combination that might happen. Unless I happen to draw Hovel versus Drums, in which case I would take Hovel. All right. So... Next up, under that, we have Nightmare Training. I know this is one of Matt's favorites. I actually do really enjoy Nightmare Training a lot. Um, it's a weird one, but you can spend an Endeavor to train, and you lose three survival off the top, and then roll a d10. If you roll a one, you have to spend a survival or die. If you roll a two through seven, you may spend one survival and roll again. So if you're running low on survival, do you really want to risk it and possibly die? Uh, and then on an 8 through 9, you get plus 1 weapon proficiency level, which is pretty sweet. Yeah. Uh, on a 10 plus, though, plus 1 permanent accuracy or strength, but I'm taking that accuracy almost every time. And there's no limit as to how many times you can endeavor here. So if you have a very high survival uh, settlement limit, you can train your ass off here and work towards getting weapon mastery pretty quickly. Or if you're lucky... Get plus a couple of accuracy, and then you're not missing, and that's a that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, uh, nightmare training is good for weapon training. I wish there's some better ways in the game to, besides going out on hunts, to get weapon proficiency. So this this is one of the few ways to do it. Right. Then uh, you said it when you've got a survivor who's close to reaching like the max on weapon efficiency it's sometimes safer to sit them in the settlement if they have enough survival and just roll on this a few times um to get the last couple of points and then you can take them back out again and not worry if they die because you've already managed to unlock the innovation so i actually like nightmare training um this is a meaningful kind of thing again you know like the worst that happens is you lose four survival because you're not going to roll on this if you don't have enough survival to avoid dying. So it's it's just a decent card. It's not high priority, it's late game, but it can be very beneficial. Uh, so one of the nice things that happened to us was when one of our streams we had a character that was one level of weapon proficiency away from being a master, and then, or two rather, and they were on a hunt, and then they happened to get the one that says, you, you just retire. You aren't doing anything else anymore. You can't depart on any more hunts. And so we left him in this, the settlement and Nightmare trained a few times to uh, get him the, I think it was the Fist and Tooth Mastery. Yes, it was. And getting that is very nice. So Nightmare training, definitely a thumbs up in my book. All right, next up we have Storytelling. So Storytelling is plus one survival limit. Uh, two endeavors to do Tale as Old as Time. And you roll a d10. On a one through three, spend three resources and gain an understanding. It's a little rough of a trade-off, but understanding is always good. Four through seven, gain two survival and two insanity. Okay. For two endeavors, that's a little steep. 
Uh, but you're doing this to try and roll an 8 plus to get the white speaker to happen. Which is an interesting story event. And I just realized this was a Beauty and the Beast kind of yes. tales all the time. I just noticed that. Is it also a song as old as rhyme? <sighs> but yeah, White Secret is uh, interesting. It's a lot more interesting with the promo White Speaker and the Colt Speaker Knife. Colt Speaker Knife. But uh, it, that's an interesting story event. So for those of you unfamiliar, the Colt Speaker Knife is a dagger... Slash fist and tooth slash weapon. fist and tooth weapon. I believe it's three speed with reasonable accuracy, and it's got sharp as well. Yeah. So it's you're gonna use that to get your fist and tooth weapon mastery if you have that available for sure. Fen, anything more on storytelling? Um, no, it's just just to agree. It wasn't very good until the uh, white speaker update came out. All right. So the last innovation in the base game is records. Which doesn't work in any of the expansions, really, because it... Well, I mean, it does, but it's a little weird. So, records is spend two endeavors and knowledge. On a one, move the Nemesis Encounter Watcher forward one year on the timeline. If the event is moved to this year, trigger it now. On a two, record-keeping duty, skip the next hunt. Three through five, you learn nothing. Nothing! Uh, six through nine, gain a fighting art a survivor currently has. Does not include secret fighting arts. And then on a 10+, set your hunt XP to zero. You may gain the benefits of age again. So that's really cool if you roll that. Um, and then rolling a 1 also to move the nem- the Watcher fight closer is something you might want to do. Possibly. Uh, but, like, you have to get this pretty early on. And, like, because you can trigger him five years early. So, like, to get him on year 19, you would have to do this 16 times and roll a, or six times and roll a 1. Right. So it's it's hard, but it's possible. And then, uh, I mean, if you roll a 10+, plus, that's really awesome. Gaining the benefits of age again, I mean, there's a good chance you're just going to get a bunch of fighting arts, but uh, possibilities of rolling and getting some nice bump-up in your stats again are pretty sweet. And then if you have a survivor that's close to being retired, then you can be like, no, I'm still here. And the 6 or 9 is not bad either. Like, getting another, if you have someone with a good fighting art... It's like what we talked about with the sculpture before. Yeah, uh, just a little, not as a... Uh, what sort I want? Overpowered? Not as random. This oh, is a little... Okay. This is more random. This is more random, yeah. But anything on records? Um, not really. Uh, I do disagree. I think this is... I disagree with regards to this being beneficial in the um, alternate campaigns. It still is, because 6 to 9 is really powerful, and 10 is ridiculously powerful. This is something you can actually do to stop um, when you've a retired survivor sat in the settlement. You can just get them refreshed and get them back out again and doing stuff. So it's it's brilliant, actually. Um, even though you 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 know we talked, I think, of before about the silliness of dragging the watcher forward um, and how far forward you could pull it to fight super early, even without that nonsense. This is like what's the worst that happens? You have to skip a hunt. It's fine, you know. It's, it's possibly even stronger in um, People of the Sun and People of the Stars than it is in the core game, because obviously in the core game, pulling the Watcher forward can hasten the end of the game happening faster. Um, but again, that probably will change in 1.5, seeing as we now know the Watcher is not going to be the end of the game and we're going to get a proper um, story capper with the Gold Smoke Knight, so... Um, I, I like records a lot, and I think it is definitely worth two endeavors to activate. All right, so that's all the innovations. 
We had two things to talk about. I just want to mention them briefly. I don't want to go into depth. Um, just so we, next episode we can get into Gorm and the expansions. So the last two things we haven't really talked about are fighting arts and disorders. And just a brief overview. Fighting arts are kind of special skills that your survivor can get. Um, might make them harder to die. Might make it easier for a hit. Um, so if they get a perfect hit, they may get a plus one insanity or some other fun things like that. There's a bunch of them too. So yeah, there's, there's a there's, there's a, a whole stack of, of them in the game. Um, and disorders are more the antithesis of fighting arts. A good chunk of the time, they are negative effects on you. However, there are a handful of positive disorders. Briefly, there's like quixotic, uh, which gives you plus strength tokens, and then there's uh, un- unkillable. There is immortal. Immortal. There we go. So That's... when you're insane, all the damage you take <clears throat> is to your brain, and then you can mitigate that by having a high level of insanity or having something that says you're always insane. So that's something that's very interesting. There are some positive disorders. The good chunk of them are negative, however. Um, the one thing to note is it's very hard to make builds based off fighting arts and disorders since you get them dealt randomly. The only time you get to kind of choose is if you use sculpture or the records. And then even still, it's only something that you've already gotten at some point in time. Yeah. So, Fen, do you have anything more to add to fighting arts and uh, disorders before we end the episode? Uh- not really. I mean, obviously, there are some fighting arts we'll probably talk about in the future when we get on to uh, ways you can build around them. And the same with disorders. Um, but you don't have a lot of control over what you're going to get. You have to react to what you receive and figure out what you're going to do with it. But in both cases, and even with disorders, as you said, there's some things that are problematic. Um, some things are interesting. And sometimes you have disorders that are just complete non-entities. Uh, I always like weak spot, which I can't remember if that's in the core game or not. But I think that's fantastically well designed, um, but also really frustrating on a leyline walker or um, an acanthus doctor. And when you have, I think, weak spot and, and your old chest, and then you get um, vestophobia, and your character will not head out. Uh, unless their chest is covered, but they will, they refuse to recover their chest because it's too beautiful. It's just, that's just fantastically funny. So, um, I mean, you know, I think you have to be reactionary with how you play with both of them and take the rough with the smooth. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it makes them interesting, and uh, but there's really no way to build around it too much. And Matt is rubbing me with a cat. I don't know why. All right, anything else you want to talk about, Fen, before we end, end this? Uh, no, I think we've very, very comprehensively covered everything involved in the core game um, and left, still left some areas for people to explore and, uh, and look at new things. So, um, no, I, I think I'm pretty much happy with what I've had to say. All right, so I think that's going to end uh, today's episode. Indeed. So join us for our next episode. We're going to start getting into the expansions in Kingdom Death. Uh, We're going to, again, go back and revisit some of the topics in the core game as they come up topically, uh, such as what things synergize with the uh, core game and the certain expansions we're referencing, and then as well as the synergies between the different expansions themselves. So we're really excited to go into that because that adds a lot of depth and strategy into the game. Uh, but otherwise, thank you all for joining us this evening for our Great Game Owners podcast, and we hope to have you all back for the next one. Uh, in the meantime, uh, you want to pimp out the rest of our stuff. We are Twist Gaming, so if you can, follow us on Facebook, Twitch, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and come chat with us in our Discord channel. And then, Fen, you want to pimp your stuff out? 
Uh, yeah, you can uh, catch me streaming over at, um, at twitch.tv forward slash fensaunig, which is Z-A-U-N-I-G. And for those of you in America, Z is also known as Z. Um, and also my Instagram is the same name for the account. Um, my Twitter is fen underscore saunig, where um, I will tweet when I'm going to be painting. And usually it is painting streams with a little bit of discussion about King Death here or there. Sometime, I think Monday will be when I'm next streaming and it's going to be some screaming antelope survivors that I paint up. Um, but yeah, and um, occasionally I do play a little bit of Kingdom Death as well on there. But uh, that's all I have to say. You know, there's more stuff in the chat here. And if you go to my page on um, Twitch, you can see the links to um, the specific like bits and pieces that I have uh, where you can catch up on what I do, uh, pictures, etc. All right. So great game hunters signing off for this episode. I'm Matt. I'm Josh. Uh, and I'm sometimes forgetting to say things. I'm Finn. Uh, good night, everyone. Good thanks night, for joining and us. Thanks for listening. Bye bye.